Never mind Simon Cowell, if you want a talent spotter, call Hervé Poncheral. Welcome to Bike Live on Motorsport 101. Let's go! Yes, it's a warm welcome to episode 20 of Bike Life here on Motorsport 101 as we look back on the German Grand Prix at the Saxon Ring and another weekend which proves that Hervé Poncheral knows a talent when he sees one. After Joan Zarco's incredible start to his rookie campaign in MotoGP, this time it was the turn of Jonas Folger on home soil to light up MotoGP with a first ever podium on home soil at the Saxon Ring, the 10th different podium sitter in nine races in MotoGP this year. Just to emphasize what an incredible season we're having, which now heads into its summer break with Marc Marquez as the World Championship leader. Who would have thought that a few rounds ago? Marquez taking his second win of the year at the weekend and his eighth in a row in the German Grand Prix to take a lead in the World Championship over Andrea De Vizioso and the two Yamaha riders into the summer break. Just 10 points covers the top four. We'll talk about all four championship contenders and the weekend that was in Germany uh, last time out. We'll also look back at the Moto2 and Moto3 races. Championships not quite as close in these ones. Franco Morbidelli now 34 clear after his victory in Moto2. John Mir 37 clear after his victory in Moto3. We'll also look at the Snetterton British Superbike round as the top three close right up in that championship. And the showdown picture looks, starts to look a little bit clearer. And we'll look ahead to this weekend's United States round of the World Superbike Championship at Laguna Seca and the upcoming Suzuka 8-hour, which this week announced its entry list. Um, Rebecca James this week, for those that are wondering where she is, she is taking a very hard-earned holiday in Spain. Um, believe us, given the uh, schedule she's been working to at the moment, she's earned this one. So um, we yeah. wish her well, and she'll be back with us, we hope, um, next week. Um, join me though this week is a man who has spent most of today googling how much it will cost to have Lukaku 9 on the back of his new Manchester United shirt it's Andre Harrison welcome Dre the answer is 11.95 thank you very much but um <laughs> so he has been checking it I have no idea what you're talking about <laughs> but, but uh, good evening everybody it's a pleasure to be with you as always um, I've, I've been too busy reveling in men in success and potentially 75 million pound Belgian striker transfers it's been a good week yeah, well, at least we know what the going rate is for donkeys nowadays um, in Premier League football um, in, in terms of <laughs> In terms of uh, this show and the places you can find us, um, angry Manchester United fans will want to be writing these down. Um, we are on Twitter at motorsport underscore 101. Um, plans to find Ryan King and you motorsport crush are progressing nicely. Um, yes. On Facebook, we are facebook.com forward slash motorsport 101. On YouTube, uh, youtube.com forward slash motorsport 101 on there. Um, our website, motorsport101.net, um, where you can find back episodes for this show and indeed for Motorsport 101, which this week hit episode 93. Um, and if you want to back us financially, you can on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash motorsport101. If you do back us on there, uh, you can earn yourself early access to both Bike Live and Motorsport 101, which, as I say, hit episode 93 this week, Dre. Um, many, many who are listening to this show will have probably already heard it, but for those that haven't, um, tell the listeners what they can expect on this week's episode. Nothing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, um, yeah, it's, it's strange because basically we didn't actually have all that much to talk about this week because we didn't have a major round, whether it, whether it be Formula One, IndyCar, Formula E, any, any sorts. We didn't really have a round. So we did spend a lot of time um, keeping it 101, basically a lot of gushing over the new Edgar Wright movie, Baby Driver, which, was a, which is apparently really, really good. 
I haven't seen it yet because damn it. Um, basically, um, he talks obviously a lot about the FIA and, and the meeting that basically never was, as Sebastian Vettel admitted. He was a very naughty boy and promised he wouldn't do it again, basically, um, as he as as the internet started to debate itself again as to whether that was whether that was the right punishment or not. So all of that, as well as some of the other news, including um a mega mailbag so thanks everybody that submitted questions in on that one some fun ones in the mailbag this week including some moto gp ones in there as well so if you if you like this show why don't you give that a try as well there's a couple of bike ones in there too so it was it was a fun time yeah, which is, i basically said listen to like watch all of the moto gp season so far which by the way you have no excuse because there's now they're now offering the video pass on free trial until august the 5th tremendous idea from the guys at Dorna. like you can watch the entire MotoGP season right now for free on the video pass. You have no excuse. None at all. <laughs> and um, yeah, there's barely a bad race amongst them. Um, so so go and do that. Um, yeah, incidentally, for those that don't know, I, I edit Motorsport 101. So I was, I was listening through to this episode as, um, <coughs> as I edit it before we put this online. And um, it was interesting. The question on the MVP um, of Motorsport of 2017 Um Credit to Ryan King, who finally did mention it. But uh, I was listening to a lot of that talk of the MVP thinking, why has no one mentioned Dovey yet? <laughs> <laughs> I am so like, I am so sacked. I am sacking myself from this show <laughs> for forgetting that one. But like, I, was like, I was like, wait a minute, what about Dovey? And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> uh, basically. Um, but yeah, well, I wasn't proud of myself for that one. But yeah, uh, yeah we did get there in the end. Like, I can't believe it. Like, like I think it was just because Josh, bless him, who answered the answer, who sent us the question, was, was put Vinyas and we were thinking about him, and I was, I think I was too busy trying to talk myself out of Maverick that I forgot about Dovi. Hmm. <laughs> funny how that one turned out. Hmm. Well, Dovi <laughs> headed into last weekend at the Saxon Ring as the World Championship leader. As amazing as that sounds, given um, Ducati's recent record over the last six or seven years in MotoGP, um, he didn't leave it as championship leader, unfortunately. Mark Marquez doing what Mark Marquez does, and that is win from pole position at the Saxon Ring. Um, we'll come on to him in a moment, because he really wasn't the story for once um, oh. when he wins the Grand Prix, which he always is, because he's, he's a brilliant rider, let's face it. But um, the guy in second place was the story, Dre. Um, he's, he's gone under the radar a little bit for a lot of this season, given the exploits of his teammate, but... Um, I think we're all delighted to see Jonas Folger get his moment um, for what has been, a, in its own right, a tremendous rookie season. Um, and we kind of have to put into context what he did at the weekend. 30 years have passed since a German was on the podium at the German Moto Motorcycle Grand Prix in the Premier Class. That is the, the air that Jonas Folger was walking in last weekend. What an incredible weekend from the guy. Yeah, rarefied, I think the phrase is that you're looking to describe that air in question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we talked about it a little bit on the show this season, that uh, Jonas Folger, if you put Jonas in a vacuum, this would be a tremendous rookie season that he's having right now. It's just the nature of Johan Zarco has been so spectacular that it, it, it's almost made us a bit quiet regarding Volga's achievements, who, who in its own right has been very impressive. Um, you know, scoring in the points all but one round so far this season, multiple top 10 finishes. He, he really did give Zarco a good run for his money at Catalonia, and that was a fun dog fight as well. Volga's had great moments too. And it, it obviously, the, you know, Zarco has been the, the, the rookie revelation this season, but Volga's been great in his own right. And I'm glad that that finally came to fruition um, at this Grand Prix because, I mean, 
we all know Marquez is practically invincible around here now at this point, but Jonas Volga gave Marquez a better fight than anybody has around the Saxon ring in the eight years that Marquez has had that winning streak. And Marquez admitted it himself, obviously, that's the hardest I've had to push at the Saxon ring in the eight years that he's had this winning streak. And, like, Volga didn't look uncomfortable, only made the one mistake, really, and then when he, when he ran right early on when he led... When he actually led the race, we were like, wait, wait a minute, what are they feeding these guys at Tech 3? What is Volga doing up here? Um, basically. Yeah. Fan and... booth looked like it had made an entrance to Mons GP, didn't it? Um, with exactly. Volga. It's, and it's amazing with these Tech 3 youngsters how they've both just really stepped up at their home Grand Prix. Just, they, they don't seem to feel feel pressure, do they? Um, like, fearless. Because... <laughs> Like, we, we see many a rider, many a driver in motorsport excel at their home rounds. You know, we've seen others um, with great records at home Grand Prix in Formula 1 and in, in MotoGP. Um, Rossi had that amazing record for so many years in his pomp at Mugello, for instance. Yes. Um, but for a younger rider, it's very easy for that kind of pressure, in Folger's case, of 77,000 of his countrymen cheering him on, for that to weigh on him. Um, but but it didn't. And what I, what I absolutely love about these two Tech 3 youngsters this season is that they both seem to be answering all of the questions that were asked of them at the start of the season in that if you take Zarco for instance his question at the start of the season was we knew he had the maturity we knew he was a, a classy operator but we didn't know whether he had that ultimate upside that ultimately blistering pace to, right. to, to crack it in MotoGP straight away and he answered that in the first round in Qatar by leading the Grand Prix Folger was kind of the opposite we knew he had the outright blistering pace we knew he had that upside but we didn't know whether he quite had that maturity to keep it on the black stuff and just to just to bolt those points finishes together in MotoGP and he's answered that question emphatically because for him to run at the front in MotoGP with Mark Marquez and to basically show Mark Marquez the way around one of his circuits on the calendar at the Saxon ring just shows you how much maturity this guy does indeed have you couldn't have put it but I couldn't put that better myself you're absolutely right I mean they have answered every question that we've had of riders of their quality since walking into the top flight I mean as you said Zarco always was classy. He always, yeah, you know, he was he was a proven, you know, established operator. But we didn't know whether he had the ultimate pace to challenge. He does. Jonas Volger was always the matter of consistency. He's proven it. He's been the one of the very few consistent riders in the field that hasn't made very many mistakes as the season has gone on and basically getting the maximum out of the bike that he can get every single weekend. Something that we. We didn't really see of him when he was at Dynavolt in Moto2, a guy that, you know, often, I mean, we, we often accuse him of him basically phoning it in after getting that MotoGP seat because it, it was just, it was it was one vulgar day after another. Sometimes he was amazing and other times he threw away very easy results. And that was the frustrating thing about Jonas Volger in, in, in his biking career in general. The talent was always there. The, the problem was whether he could put it together over an entire season, and right now he's doing just that. And as it, like this was his moment to shine. And yeah, he faded a little bit towards the end, but no one has given Marquez that sort of fight at the Saxon Ring in, in, in his MotoGP career to no, date. It, it <laughs> wasn't until the tyre started to go with two laps to go that we actually finally started to say, yeah, Folger's done here. With three yeah. to go, he was still right on the tail of Marquez. It was incredible. It was like Marquez... What, Marquez set the fastest lap of the race with two to go. Because yeah, they, they weren't <laughs> setting a slow pace either. No, like, basically, at least from what I noticed, like, Marquez and Volga are in a different postcode to everybody else this weekend. Yeah, and not anything. Danny. 
Yeah, they, Danny finished 11 seconds off the win. And Danny normally goes very well around here. He's given Marquez a good fight on many occasions. He's always been the nearest man in contention. Not this time. And like this is last year's Yamaha we're talking about here. And it's beaten both the factory boys by over 10 seconds. Mm. Like, Volga was fearless this time around. Incredible pace. Incredible discipline from Volga to be able to ride that. There was only the one mistake in, in the early going. And even then, it didn't really punish him too bad as, as the race would go on. And now the new lab record holder at the Saxon Ring as well. A 121.4. So... And he's taken something out of Marquez to, 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 uh, out of pettiness to take the weekend, and he's now earned a new nickname of Volgas. So, uh, yeah, 121.442 was the lap record Volgas set. And now, with that's both Tech 3 riders have now set a lap record or set a fastest lap at least. Uh, Zarko, yep. of course, set the fastest lap. Um, you see, in fact, Volgas now done the fastest lap in two of the last three rounds because he set the fastest lap in Barcelona, too. Um, yes, these, yeah. two, these two kids are incredible. Um, and incredible. You, can, you can almost hear Hervé Poncheral saying, Don't get too excited here. Um, let's keep right. expectations to a minimum, but let's let's ignore him, Dre. Um, yes, um, because we've had five different winners this year and ten different podium sitters. Um, can you see a set of circumstances in the second half of the season where either Zarko and Folger actually goes and wins one of these? Yeah, if if, if the rain comes down a bit, why the hell not, right? Yeah. Like Zarko take, take three, by the way, have never won a Grand Prix in MotoGP. Which is crazy because they've had some great talent on their bikes over there. I love the uh, the post race interview on on BT Sport between uh, Craig Doyle, not to see him back, with uh, James Tozland, who was there, obviously a former Tech Free rider himself, yes. arm in arm with Ponch. He was just obviously delighted at the fact that he's now had both his riders finish on the podium this season. Who doesn't um, have a Poncheral as well? Like, <laughs> like that guy, the, to use the football analogy, that guy kicks every ball, doesn't he? <laughs> He really does. Like, like that is a guy that is one. Like, he is one of the faces of the paddock. The guy uh, that I think us all are desperate to see win one. Yes, uh, I would love to see Tech Free win a Grand Prix at some point because the talent they've got the talent for it, and it's it's the best team they've had probably since the days of Crutchlow and Davizioso back in 2013, and that was probably back then the closest they'd gotten to a win was when Crutchlow gave Marquez a good run of it. I think he finished second that year in 2013. Marcus's rookie season. Um, so yeah, it's it's. I'd love to see Ponch get one because uh, he's one of the he's, he's one of the old boys in that paddock. He's been around for such a long time. I remember seeing his face playing the bloody Namco video games in the, yes. in the mid two thousands, and I'm like, yeah, that's how long Ponch has been around, and then some. So this this is the best team he's had um, since 2013, and certainly the most promising on potential. Um, which is a shame because we all know they are Yamaha's B team, but like it's nice to see that the B team can beat the A team every once in a while um, if the, if they play their cards right. And again, they destroyed the factory team on this occasion. I'm sure we'll get to yeah. the, the the nuances behind that in a minute. But yeah, just just an unbelievable. Like, Tech Three have been so imp- like they're probably the team of the year so far in MotoGP. I don't think anybody had this level of expectation as to how good they would be in 2017. They've no, been stunning. Absolutely not. We all thought that Volga and Zarco was a downgrade on Aspargaro and Smith. And yeah, we, don't, we, we obviously don't know what Aspargaro and Smith would have done on those bikes, but the, no one can take away uh, the performances that Folga and Zarco have been doing. They've, they've been absolutely sensational. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, and, and, and the, their performances, I think Poncheral deserves so much of the credit for this because... He he just makes his riders feel ten feet tall, doesn't he? He gives them he gives them the support. He gives them 
faith or shows faith in them to go out there and do the job. Aprilia, I hope you're taking notes. Um, yes. Because I think back to I think back to obviously I follow Bradley Smith's junior career through Moto Three or One Two Fives it was then and then Moto Two. Um, and I remember when Bradley got the seat at Tech Three in Moto Two for 2011, and a lot of people looked at that and thought, well, that's not a great bike to be on in Moto Two, and they're right because it's not. Um, but Poncheral put his faith in Bradley Smith. He he'd identified Bradley as the talent that he wanted to back in the future and basically made him feel wanted and made him feel valued and basically said to Bradley after his first year, gave him a two-year contract. Gave him a two-year contract oh with the first God. year in Moto2 and the second year in MotoGP, which saw him move up to MotoGP in 2013 and told him, you know, forget what people are saying about you, about the fact that you've not had a win in Moto2 because I know the machine you're on and I know the job you're doing on it and you're my guy and you're the guy that I'm taking into MotoGP for the few years to come. And of course, he was the Tech 3 signing and Paul was the Yamaha signing in that partnership. Um, so so Poncheral, I think, deserves so much credit for making his riders, A, feel wanted, and B, feel not so much better than they are, but he makes them feel 10 feet tall, doesn't he? He makes them feel like MotoGP riders, um, which like, in many ways is half the battle. Yeah, yeah there's, there's, there's one thing I've got to throw in there as well. Like When we found out that Volga got this seat, there was raised eyebrows from yeah. many a fan out there. Me included, I was like, are we sure this was the right idea? Mm. Like, are we sure Volga's GP ready? And well, Pontiac <laughs> has been a long-term backer of him, hasn't he? He has. Like, ever since his days in Moto Three, I think I think Ponch has always tried to bring Volga in. This has always been difficult because Volga was, you know, one of the graduates of the Red Bull Rookies Cup, and as anybody will tell you, Motec Three are sponsored by Monster, which is a bit of a problem. Um, so there was many a conflict of interest they had to resolve and get over before Volga could ride for this team which is you know it's, it's probably the main reason why you don't get talk about f1 drivers changing teams in the video games because it will be a sponsorship nightmare yeah. this is a, this is basically a real life example of that um so yeah the like the like basically i remember the talk about volga potentially going to tech free probably three or four years ago actually so yeah i remember he was linked with bradley's ride around that time where uh, this grand prix what three years ago when he had those five crashes at the saxa ring volga was being linked with his ride then Exactly. So Volga's name has always been dabbled around with Tech 3. And, you know, Poncharol, you know, basically was able to get Volga to drop his Red Bull affiliation and, and basically join the dark side of, of Lewis Hamilton great favorite energy drinks. Uh, so, you know, more more power to Volga on that one. And you're absolutely right. He's 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 done nothing but compliment and talk Volga up for years now. And it's starting to pay dividends and we're starting to see that talent come to the surface here because you're absolutely right. Poncherol like, is a confidence guy. He, he instills confidence in his riders. He gives them the best possible chance of success, which is, which is often when you're an independent team, especially in MotoGP until this year, that's a difficult thing given that, you know, there's no guarantee about what parts you'll get, what support you'll get. How are you going to you know, divide up your support? Because there was many a, a headbutt in between Brad about who got what at the time at the, when, when they were using old M1s in the past. So it's not easy being punched sometimes in this when you're an independent team and, you know, you, you, the upgrades development paths are almost out of your hands because of, you know, outside circumstances. But he, he's had the full back in. Like, clearly last year's M1 was a very, very good bike. It was just, just maybe not fully utilised to its maximum because the fact of the matter is it's still competitive now. And... We saw Zarco do it at Assen just just a week or so ago, where he was running 
with the with the front on on, on with Valentino Rossi that actually likes this year's bike a lot more. So it kind of says it all. Um, so when you factor all of those things in, you've got a great bike, a, a better development plan, and one of the best team bosses in the business that has a real eye for talent and a real nature of basically treating his riders like family, which, you know, is something that you have to do a lot because of how difficult a MotoGP schedule is over eight months where you're often away from your family. So that is your family in, in a sense, given that you're basically going around the world together. But Ponch is a bit like that uncle that, you know, that puts you on his knee and says, yeah, I think you're going to be great, son. Well, in this case, nephew. But you get the point. Um <laughs> Yeah, he's, he's he is, and yeah, yeah, you make a good example with with Tozlan as well because you know look at the relationship they still have. Tozlan didn't exactly have a great time there at Tech Three, did he? You know, he didn't you know, he didn't exactly came in as a world superbike champion, of course, and started brilliantly front row in his first round, but it never quite happened for, for Tozlan. And of course, he was made he was made he had to make way for Spees in the end in two thousand nine uh, at Ooh. that team. But but look at the Look at the relationship they still have. They they still get on great. You know, Poncheral makes his riders feel wanted, feel valued, and the riders repay him with results. And yes. um, you know, I don't think I can't even a single rider that Poncheral didn't have a good relationship with in his time at Tech Three. And as I say, other teams may well need to look at that for the way to uh, get the best out of your rider. Um, sometimes just a shot in the arm and a confidence boost is the way to go about it. Um, let's talk about then about the man that beat Folger to a, what would have been an incredible home victory at the Saxon ring, Mark Marquez. And uh, as I say, it's his eighth straight win from pole position at the Saxon ring, going all the way back to the 2010-125 uh, Grand Prix in Germany, which was really where Mark Marquez began, uh, in a sense. That was where his yeah. march to the Mont 25 title started uh, at the Saxon ring. Um, back in 2010. Um, and as a bookie, you'll know this, Dre, the odds-on favourite doesn't always win in sport. Um, no, sometimes doesn't. they trip up, but that can't be levelled at Mark Marquez. Whenever he is the odds-on favourite, whenever the 25 points are on the table, Mark Marquez always goes out there and converts, doesn't he? He does. And <laughs> I said it on Twitter the day after after the race. I said... When you know, like at the Saxon ring, if it's not raining, the man is. I've I've never seen a rider almost so invincible than Martin Marquez at the Saxon ring. Like no one's got an answer for him around even this. Even even in the rain, he still put it on the pole. Yeah, even in even in changeable conditions, he still found the way to get it done. And that nothing opens the field up more than changeable conditions and damp and damp tracks and. Like nothing throws out more unpredictable results than that. But look, here, here's Mark Marquez. He, he, you just can't beat him round here. He is, he's borderline invincible at the Saxon Ring. And this was such a necessary Grand Prix for Marquez. He needed to get back in in the race and in the title race. And I love that he talked about it after the Grand Prix. The not only the, the, the glowing tribute to Nicky Hayden and his family is you know, this his first win since his tragic passing, but also. The fact that um, his 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 rider coach said he'd be leading the championship into the summer break after Mugello, where he was 37 points <laughs> off the top three rounds ago, and it it, it is, is, is this scream of 2016 to anybody where like everyone's beating each other up and they've let Marquez in through the back door again, and like why are we over like why are we underestimating the best bike rider on the planet i do not understand what is going on here this season is crazy but <laughs> we all know it mark marquez is just so freaking good around here and 
eight in a row from pole position is an unbelievable. I've gone on three different forms of motorcycle and in changeable conditions, you know, in wet or dry, he's found the way to come out on top. That is an unbelievable streak in 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 Grand Prix motorcycle racing, and that's a, a hard one to top in the modern era. Um, the guy just keeps finding ways to rewrite the record book, and. That's what Mark Marquez has been doing for years now. So I, I, I don't want to say I'm surprised, but at the same time, a, a mature, disciplined, brilliant ride from Marquez once again. And the, again, I mentioned there a minute ago, the fact he set the, his, his personal best with two laps to go um, in, in a 30-lap Grand Prix was very impressive how he basically was able to weather the storm of Volga and then kick him in the throat when it was all said and done right at the end of the race when Volga started to fade. It was... It was a, a disciplined, brilliant ride. Yeah, it says a lot, I suppose, about the mind of a champion because, you know, many, many riders would have probably looked at that thinking, is Folger still here? Like, I've not dropped him yet. Like, I've, I'm throwing everything at this kid and he's still keeping up with me. Um, and, and that might worry many two riders into thinking, well, basically just pushing too hard and making a mistake. But Marquez was clearly of the, the attitude of, I'm going to keep, I'm going to be relentless here. I'm going to keep setting this pace. He'll crack eventually. Um, right. And, and with two laps to go, he eventually did. He just couldn't quite last the pace. Or more to the point, his tyre, Folger's tyre, couldn't quite last the pace um, that Mark Marquez was setting. Um, but it's, 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 I guess it's a case study again in how to approach a world championship with Marquez. I mean, he's had two crashes this season, so he's hardly been faultless um, in 2017. But Mark Marquez goes into the summer break as the championship leader, and he's, he's basically his strength, I suppose. And the reason he's done that is because he's maximised his best circuits Marquez leads the championship despite having only won two races out of nine and they're the two races he always wins I wonder how much would his Marquez scratching his head during the summer break going if only I had won in Argentina he'd have one hand on the championship right now he'd probably be 30 plus points in front which again like I don't although, I, think although I guess all, all well certainly all three if you include two Yamahas could also tell that story couldn't they absolutely Rossi, Rossi Lamont Vinales at Texas for instance absolutely because Vinales was giving Marquez a good run for his money in Texas until uh oh the back went out but um it's it, it, it's been a war of attrition this season it's been a it's been a, a a case of who can make the least amount of mistakes and we saw it last year Marquez I mean, if you ask anyone in that paddock, they will not tell you that Honda is an easy bike to ride. They will tell you that Honda is a bastard un- under any circumstances. I mean, I don't know if anyone's ever seen that slow motion footage of Aston where he basically loses the front on the final chicane, but he saves it on his knee in typical Mark Marquez fashion. This is still spectacular. Yet he does it so often, it's almost normal to him at this point. But um, many were commenting, like Crutchlow himself as well, was saying, listen... The guy's a demon, basically. He just finds a way to basically mask the Honda's problems with just, just with sheer talent more than anything else. And it's it's a it's a worrying thought that at only twenty-four he's only he's he's still got at times this ridiculous pace that no rider has ever established in MotoGP before. Mm. But on but but on but on top of that, he's also just starting to learn and starting to have this maturity now about himself where he's like a a couple of years ago it would have been a case that well at least to me i I was nervous watching him lead a race because he always felt like he was this close to crashing it at every given time i don't get that fear with marquez anymore 
where if he leads a race, he can lead and he can comfortably, he knows where it, where the limit is now a lot more than he did two years ago. And I think that is and a he big. He knows point. how much of a premium is placed on staying on the bike and getting the points, which especially which is, now, especially now, especially now, and we're going to talk about this a bit more with the Yamahas about how you know we're now having to start looking at fourths, fifths, and sixths as not bad results really um, in most GP because the points are so important they they soon add up um, because hell we're what nine races in Marquez leads the championship on uh, let's get the championship standings up Marquez leads it on 129 so they're only really going at what. Well, half halfway through the season, looking at a 260 as your world champion at the end of the season, which That's is low. Nice. That's low for a world champion. This is usually, very low. You're usually looking at 300 as a minimum to win a world championship uh, in most EP. Um, so it's it's going to be a low figure this season because the points are being split around four contenders, five arguably, um, the man we're about to talk about. Um, but yeah, it's, it, what's really going to be fascinating, and we'll talk about this a bit more when we look at the championship contenders as a whole after we've talked about all four, is how Marquez goes in the next four, maybe five races. Because it was at this period last season where Marquez had that run of results where he didn't really get on the podium much, did he? Um, no. now, now, part of it was how much of that was down to the bike not being able to do it, and how much of that was just Marquez trying to be cautious and get the points. Was We, we may find out this season, but of course we've got Bruno coming up um, where he was on the podium last year in that rain-affected race where Crutchlow won. Austria is around where he expects to struggle, um, obviously, because there are a lot of acceleration zones there, which the Honda hates. Um, we then have Silverstone, which Marquez went well at last year, but they made a mistake and lost the podium. Mizano, which is Yamaha country. Um, and then, after that, it opens up again for Mark because we head into Aragon, where he loves. Um, and he's gone well there so many times. And then the three Asia Pacific rounds, Mategi is a Honda-owned circuit. Um, Philip Island, Marquez loves, um, and he also the Hondas also love Sepang. So it, this next month uh, or two months of the season might be where Marquez has to just bite the bullet a bit um, and just keep himself in range when he gets to Aragon onwards, and he might well suddenly come climbing back into contention again. It's really going to ebb and flow between these four contenders um, as we go from one round to another, where it favours uh, one particular bike. Um, I mentioned four contenders. Do we still have yeah. five though, Dre? Because Danny Pedrosa. Return to form, I suppose. He had a dreadful round at Assen, um, where he finished way outside the top 10. And, of course, he crashed on the final lap in Mugello, um when he was battling for a position outside the top 10 with Cal Crutchlow. So Danny needed a podium, really. So I guess in that sense, the Saxon ring was the right place for him to go to. But he's only 26 points off the outright lead, so he's kind of still in touch. Just about. He's just about hanging in there. It's the, it's the Danny Pedrosa way, and... Yeah, I, I guess he's still in the mix. The problem I have with Petrosha is that where is he going to get points on Marquez as the season goes on? Because well, He's got to make points on four guys as opposed to one, hasn't he? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like It's hard enough for him to make points on Marquez, let alone a couple of super-fast Yamahas and a surprising Andrea De Vizioso, the way the season's played out. And We've seen it with Petrosha. If he has a bad weekend, he has a really bad weekend. <laughs> There's no middle ground with Danny P where... If it's good, it's great. If it's bad, it's terrible. Single-figure points. It's single-figure points. And if he's doing that, well, he's not going to win a championship because he's just too inconsistent. And, oh, dear. Um, so, Pedrosa is still in the mix, but he's going to have to start getting some bigger weekends and taking some bigger chunks of points out of Marquez and the Yamahas if he expects to stay in the race. Hmm. Yeah, the Yamahas then next up, the factory Yamahas, that is, of course. The first of the Yamahas was second, Volga. Uh, Maverick Vinales and Valentino Rossi, fourth and fifth, from relatively low grid positions. Valentino qualified ninth, 
Um, of course, we had a wet qualifying and the Yamahas just did not work in the wet for once. Um, Maverick Vinales doesn't ever seem to really work in the wet. He was 11th on the grid, just as he was um, at Assen the race prior. Um, enough. We'll talk about Maverick Vinales' wet weather problems another day because we've talked about that before and he kind of overcame them, I suppose. I mean, he, from where he started, I guess fourth position can be titled making the best of a bad job, Dre. Yeah, and David Emmett summed it up well after the race where he said, that was the happiest I've seen Maverick in months when it came to riding a motorcycle. Uh, like, it's easy to forget that Maverick's had a pretty bad run of form the last few rounds going into this one. Yeah. And, you know, he was... He was, he was, he was he was content with the second at Mugello, but Catalina was a bad day. Aston was a dreadful day. Um, this one was pretty good, to say the least. I think he'll take a fourth in the grand scheme of things, because this has never been a Yamaha circuit. Yamaha's not won here, I think, since 2010. Um, so, it, like, on, on, form, on form alone, this was never going to be a Yamaha strong point. Little bit embarrassing that Jonas Vogel was 10 seconds in front of him down the road, but... It, goes down to this controversy of, well, Yamaha's playing their cards close to their chest when it comes to their chassis at the moment. And that's been <laughs> the big story coming out of that camp the last week or two has been, well, Rossi's going back to an older chassis and he seems to really like it. Maverick hates it. And that split um, in, in the paddock and, you know, Rossi candidly talking about the chassis and Maverick basically being told, don't you dare, young buck. We know you're, <laughs> basically, you're not, you're not saying the damn word about what bike you're running, basically. Um, and well, what's, what's interesting is that Maverick actually finished ahead of Valentino on this one. Um, so who knows what's going on in that camp right now? But I think once again, like last year, Yamaha's got to be asking themselves, given that they've had three Grand Prix wins this season as a team, um, how on earth are, are neither of them leading the championship right now? Because they've had, they've had the consistent all-round package pretty much all season long. They've had a couple of, of shaky rounds, obviously. At Jerez and, and Catalonia with the super low grip circuits we've mentioned before. But besides that, I'd still say Yamaha is probably the best all round bike in the field. And despite that, they've blown easy chances. And once again, Marquez has, has gone into the summer break in front of them. So they, they've got to be banging their heads together going, well, what's going on here, lads? Like, why have we left so many points on the table again? Yeah, it's almost <laughs> like they've, I think they've, they've kind of been punished for building a bike that seems to be on a knife edge in terms of performance. It needs the right conditions to work. If, if the track conditions are sketchy or low grip, as they were on Saturday in wet conditions, the bike just did not work in, in that wet qualifying session. Um, you know, Rossi had to come in and put a new tyre on with three minutes to go because he needed some more grip. So they, they really struggled. And yeah, to, to your point, Yamaha hadn't won or haven't won at the Saxon Ring since 2009, um, which Jeez. is Valentino Rossi. Honda have won every single one since then. Um, Danny won three in a row prior to Marquez's, what what is now five in a row in the Premier class. Um, and they've only won one in the last 11 uh, at the Saxon Ring. Rossi won a couple in 05 and 06, but they've only won one since then, which was Rossi in 09. Uh, Lorenzo's never won here uh, in the Premier Class uh, wow. in all of his Yamaha years. So this is perhaps just not a circuit that their bike particularly suits, or more to the point, the Honda suits it better, which I guess puts fourth and fifth into some kind of context that it's not a bad result. And as you say, they're not leading the championship, but... Um, for Maverick, who now says he's very confident about the championship, his own words after last weekend, uh, and Valentino Rossi, who, although he's fourth of the four contenders, is only 10 off the outright lead. 
Um, right. I guess they would, given the own problems that they've had this season, they will kind of be content with that, wouldn't they? And they'll probably look at this now as an almost a reset. We now have a nine-race championship from the summer onwards. Yeah, it's again, don't get me wrong, this is not a terrible situation for Yamaha. It's probably one with raised eyebrows and they, they could look at it in the sense of, well, we've left a lot of points on the table, but they could also say, well, we've had a couple of real stinkers and we're only yeah. single digits off the top. That's not too bad. And, they, and unlike anybody else in the field, they have two dogs in the fight. Unlike anybody else, that could be a, a positive or a negative. I was say, yeah, it could be a plastic or a curse, that. Because we've seen it, but we saw it last year where basically Vinales and well, with Lorenzo back then, it was Lorenzo and Rossi, basically beat each other up. And, and that opened the door for Marquez to punish them on occasion when it came to performances on track. I mean, nothing says about the, the polarizing nature of the bikes this year than the fact that Mark Marquez and Maverick Vinales have not shared a MotoGP podium this season. Um, they've, they've not shared the same podium this year. So... It, it's it's up and down, and again, some bikes really do prefer one of the big two over the other um, right now. But again, like they're not going to be too despondent going into the break, knowing they're only they've got two dogs in the fight, and they're both within ten points of Marquez. That's not bad by any stretch of the imagination. I still can't help but think that Maverick should have a lot more points under his wagon than what he actually does. Yeah, I think he's thrown away a couple of sitters to be honest with you, but it's still not a bad situation to be in. Rossi is Rossi. He's all, he'll always be in the mix because he doesn't make very many mistakes. Maverick has got the, he's got, he's got to get the consistency in his game back. And if he does, he'll, I think he'll be favorite to win the title. But right now, like the summer break is a good chance for Yamaha to sit down and regroup and basically say, yeah, it's a nine race championship now. And heck, we've probably got most of the rounds left in our favor. Hmm. So well, this you is know, it. And- this is this is what I find yeah. interesting. Cause I'm trying to make this mind up in my head. I, I just wonder whether Yamaha might look at this and think, like I say, they'll they'll probably be content with where they are, and they've still got probably all things being equal, the best bike on the grid. Um, but you could argue that they've perhaps already had a number of their best rounds pass them by. Um, yeah. Mugello they didn't win although um, they were second and fourth there so they didn't exactly have a bad outing uh, Assen's gone by which to their credit they did win but then again they're a team with two horses in the fight so when they're on their best day it's not the same rider that's winning them um, which, no. which Yamaha might later regret They might, like, if, if Vinales was winning all these rounds where the Yamaha were strong great but Yamaha were great at Assen and Vinales didn't win it Rossi did um, and likewise Rossi didn't win at Le Mans Vinales did um, so Yamaha's bike is so strong, but their riders are dividing up the points. And you know, if we go through the rounds to go, um, Bruno's next up. You'd expect Yamaha to be the, the bike to beat there probably. in the yeah. dry. Austria, you'd expect them to probably have to follow the Ducati's home. Um, Silverstone, probably. last year it was a Suzuki that won from uh, a Honda and a Yamaha. So it's almost anybody's guess there. Anyone's um, guess. Because yeah. Silverstone has a bit of everything. Mizano is a Yamaha track and a Rossi track. Um, so he'll fancy his chances there. Aragon is a Marquez track. Um, yes. Mategi, Yamaha, uh, Yamaha have had poles the last few years, but Marquez won last year. Um, so Yamaha might fancy their chances there. Um, Phillip Island, again, is anyone's guess because it's always so close. And then we have Malaysia at the end of the season, which is a Honda track, you probably say, with the long straights. And Marquez and Pedroza go well there. Um, and then the very last race of the season is Valencia, which you'd say is Yamaha track, but it's more been a Lorenzo track um, yes. in recent years than a Yamaha track. So it's really, really, yeah, it's really, really hard to call. 
Um, so I think there are, there are probably enough circuits there to give all three contenders a bit of hope um, going through the next few rounds. And that includes Andrea Dovizioso, who lost his world championship lead at the weekend from finishing in eighth position. Um, but bizarrely, Dre, he seemed to take more promise from his overall championship picture from that eighth position and from a bad round than on any of the good ones he had previously. Because from his back-to-back -back wins in Mugello and Catalonia, he was keen to talk his championship hopes down. But he didn't seem too keen this time after finishing eighth. Yeah, it's a funny one because he wasn't top of Ducati. Those orders went to Alvaro Bautista on the GP16. But, you know, Dovi was pretty honest about it. He said, listen, I started on the wrong tyre. I made the wrong choice, and he made the best of a bad situation. You know, top eight is not a terrible result um, for, for, for Ducati have not traditionally been particularly good around here in recent times unless it rains. So this is not, again, it's not a great result. It's not a bad one either for Dovi. So he'll take the eighth place. It's it's He's still well and truly in the championship mix. He, can, he, he could have afforded a bad round after the, the two glowing wins at Catalunya and Mugello. So he'll take it in the grand scheme of things. And yeah, you know, he, he'll learn from it. And again, it's weird how we're talking about Dovi in a very different context now compared to years past where he was, you know, before he was a plucky contender. And now he's, you know, a, a true championship contender and, and was championship leader. So we have to look at Dovi in a different set of lights where this was a mistake. But again, you know, you win your titles on your bad days and not your good ones. And that was a an OK result for Dovi in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, Saxon is not a circuit that Ducati have gone well at. They they had a third last year from Dovizioso with that last corner pass uh, on Scott Redding, um, which was a, a rain-affected result, let's be honest. They haven't, other than that, they haven't had a Saxon podium since Stoner um, in 2010. That Ducati just has not been the bike to be on. Um, around the Saxon ring. And, yeah, Andrea Vizioso's sort of rationale for being so bullish, I suppose, after an eighth place was that um, he expected the bike, or based on past results, he didn't expect the bike to go so well at the Saxon ring, um, but it went better than he thought it would. And the only reason he finished so low is because he chose the wrong tyre. Um, because he, he gave the Yamahas a good race, didn't he? The Yamahas came through and were... We had that three-way fight for fourth for a long period with Rossi Vinales and Vizioso. Um, yep. bat battling it out and it was only when that tyre suddenly started to fall off the cliff later on that Dobby fell back and yeah eighth is not a bad result and again from his point of view looking at the four-way championship fight Dobby will look at this season and still think he's got a real shot at this because there are still rounds coming up most notably Austria which he'll be um, very much underlining in bright red uh, on his calendar coming up um, that Ducati <laughs> will go well at and there were races last year like Silverstone where Iannone was brilliant towards the end of last season um, the Ducati's always had a decent shout around um, Phillip Island although Dovi doesn't particularly like that place it's been Iannone again that's been getting the results for them there the long uh -huh. straights of Sepang should suit the Ducati, and Dovi won there last year, albeit in the wet, but he won that race um, in whatever conditions it took place in. Um, so there's still enough in this campaign still to keep Ducati interested, aren't there? They're not a contender, nor is Dovi, who's just going to fall away from this. You've got the feeling now. We've seen enough this season to suggest that Davizioso is going to be in there for the long haul now. Definitely. And I think that, again, there's one other thing that Ducati have got in their favour, the weather. If, if we get an, another two or three wet rounds, Dovi will, will easily get back into play because it's it's the sort of calendar where a couple of wet rounds and Ducati will be back in it because we know they tend to go well when whenever the rain comes down. They're a good 
they're a good wet weather bike and if that could easily come into play at places like potentially Phillip Island, potentially Sepang. Aragon's had a couple of wet races towards the back end of the calendar. Bruno last so, year was wet. Bruno last year was wet. So if they can get two or three more of those, it could easily bump Dovi back into contention because he's a very good weather rider. Mm-hmm. You know, and we're not going to talk about this guy much in this show, given how poorly he went. Jorge Lorenzo was only 11th. Um, and the less said about that, the better, in fairness. But um, a bit of a cheeky question. Um, but if we're looking at this championship later in the season, um, I'll ask it anyway. Um, let's say, for argument's sake, Jorge Lorenzo cracks it through the summer break and suddenly becomes the Lorenzo of old on that Ducati. Um, from a championship point of view, what kind of role do you see him playing? Um, what hey, would Ducati do? Will they send him out there as the spoiler to help Dovi? They've got to, haven't they? Yeah, like they've only got one dog in this race. Like Lorenzo, Lorenzo's out of the running. Like he's had too bad a start to the season. And even and how, if he, and how would Jorge feel about that as the the big money signing to win the championship, having to basically help Dovi win it? Probably not good. Going to Lorenzo, <laughs> Lorenzo is a man of ego. Like he's a man of ego and a man of extreme confidence. And if he hasn't got confidence. We've seen Lorenzo fall apart at times. So, yeah, it, it's it's a tricky one, to say the least. And, yeah, I can't imagine the £25 million man, Jorge Lorenzo, having to basically move to one side and help Dovi win the championship. That's something that I would never have frigging guessed in March. But this is where we are, folks. This is yeah. what this season has been. <laughs> because he could be quite a, a handy asset for Ducati um, if he is competitive second half of the season. I mean, put it this way... Um, uh, the Red Bull ring has a history of uh, red machines running one and two and swapping right before the line. Um, no way. But, uh, but, but yeah, what do they what do they do in Austria? Let's say Lorenzo is leading on the last lap in Austria and Dobby's second. What on earth do they do? They're just going to have to let Lorenzo go and win it, aren't they? Because Lorenzo's yeah. not going to give that one up. It, it, it is a fascinating... There are so many fascinating scenarios in this season. Um, but yeah, like I say, Lorenzo could have a key role to play. And let's be fair... I don't think he'd take much um, persuading to try and stop the Yamaha boys winning a championship, would he? Um, no, no. Uh, that's particularly the one on the uh, on the yellow 46. So, um, yeah, v- Lorenzo might well be quite motivated to go and help Dobby, but at the same time, he'll want to be the guy, kind of like Schumacher when he had to bring a her- come back and help Irvine in 99. He kind of did the team job, but you kind of got the thing he didn't really want to do and do that job at all. He wanted to be the guy oh, okay. that won the title. So um, we'll follow Lorenzo's progress with interest um, later in the season. Um, you mentioned the top Ducati rider at the weekend, uh, and it wasn't Davizioso, nor was it Lorenzo. Um, it was Alvaro Bautista, um, who continues to um, prove that an old bike can still do new tricks. That 2016 Ducati, the best of the bunch. Sixth position for Bautista, um, who continues just to come on strong late in races this year. Yeah, the best rider in the field that's not that's not had a podium finish this season. Yeah. Bautista has been the best of the rest so far this season. And again, like the Aspar team is a team that we all know lack of resources. Uh, had to bring back Carol Abraham for possibly monetary reasons, let's be honest. And They've, they've, they're, they're playing catch up. I mean, we all know Bautista's on last year's bike, and that, and despite that, he's in the mix on a he's, lot of occasions. He's on a two-year-old bike. Yeah, he's on a two-year-old bike right now, and he's still finding a way to get it done. And this is a, a great redemption year for Bautista, proving proving that he's still as valuable an asset as you can have in the paddock. He's really bringing the best out of that Aspar team right now. And yeah, he's doing a he's doing a tremendous job, and yeah, another pat on the back for a gr- another top six finish for the Aspar team who need all the help they can get right now. 
Yeah, he beat uh, Alicia Spargaro uh, to sixth. Alicia finishing seventh, having beaten Dovizioso uh, in the closing laps. And um, we've criticised Aprilia enough in recent weeks, so let's give him a bit of praise. That was a result that looked on the cards right from Friday morning, didn't it, for Alicia? Yeah, Alicia was, was, was fast all weekend. This this wasn't a, a particularly big shock. Um, um, Alicia's just doing it again. He's, he's done a great job of getting the maximum out of that Aprilia this year despite not the most professional of circumstances from a premier in the first place. And despite that, again, Alicia's is getting on there and, you know, doing the best he can with what he's been given. And yeah, just overall, a really, really strong result from, from, from the, the a boys there again. And yeah, just, uh, just more of that to come for sure for, 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 for a Some other riders we want to mention, uh, rapid fire next of them, um, Joan Zarco. Now this one was Folger's weekend without question in tech three. Um, but to Zarco's credit after the mother of all shockers in qualifying, qualified 19th on the grid, um, just did not get it done in the wet conditions of Q1, um, having been knocked out of that top 10 on Saturday morning. Um, 19th to 9th for Zarco and beat Cal Crutchlow right near the end. Yeah, it's a great result from Zarco. A great comeback from from the seventh row to to come back and finish in the top ten. That was about about as much as Zarco could have realistically gotten. The fact he's overtaken some really strong guys in good form like Crutchlow, Lorenzo, and Petrucci um, in there as well. Jack Miller was 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 in there. He's had he's had some good results this season, wet and dry. So. Yeah, so he's passed some good guys in there, and he's got back into the top ten. And yeah, a, a very solid result there, um, indeed, from from Johan Zarco and a, a, a good recovery drive. Absolutely. Um, we looked like we we're going to have another weekend where we'll be singing the praises of Danilo Petrucci um, after another front row start. He was beaten to pole um, by Mark Marquez on the Saturday, only just, mind you. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, Petrucci, unfortunately, as I said before the show started, um, plummeted down the field like a lift with the cable cut, unfortunately. Um, fell down all the way to 12th, and uh, the reason was rear tyre problems. The tyre just did not work for him. Um, Petrucci said that he had uh, a lot of vibration from the tyre. Uh, by his own admission, he said he felt like he was towing a trailer um, the way the rear was sliding. Um, oh, so Petrucci just didn't work for him on this occasion. Started second, finished 12th. Um, but one team that will come away from the Saturday very, very happy, unlike Pramac, is KTM because they uh, managed to get both bikes, or I'll say two of their three bikes in the points because they had Calio out there as a wild card. Um, Paul Spargo and Bradley Smith, 13th and 14th. Um, you can usually be quite confident they'll finish pretty close to one another, even though they did start at opposite ends of the grid. Paul Spargo putting that KTM Dre on the second row of the grid on Saturday afternoon in the wet conditions. Um, KTM can probably come away from this, saying that that was their best weekend so far as a MotoGP team. <laughs> yes, um, great wet weather pace from Paul Spargo. Great changeable conditions, speed, confidence and stability. And he's not someone I'd have down as a wet weather rider either. Not really, no. He's not really had any any of those real, you know, landmark sort of wet performances that we've seen from other guys in this field, including maybe even his own brother. Um, so, yeah, you can look at that. You can, you can look at that and go, yeah, yeah, he's not really a wet weather guy. And despite that, he he put it on the second row. Yeah, obviously the dry pace is going to expose him a little bit. And you know, he's, he's brought him down the field. Again, Bradley's just come up a little bit, starting from further back. So yeah, it's 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 a little bit unpredictable, but yeah, they did that. They did a very good job of being able to um, 
you know, get get both guys in the points. Real solid ride all week, all weekend. And Mika Kadia was uh, was very unlucky to miss out on on a point as well for fifteenth place, just being beaten over the line by by Jack Miller. Sadly, it was the, it was the second. Sadly, it was the second time that weekend where a Mark VDS bike had narrowly pipped a KTM to the post. <laughs> Yeah, uh, <laughs> more on that in Moto2. Um, but, but yeah, they uh, they very nearly got the trio of KTMs into the points, as it was two, of th- two out of three wasn't bad. Um, Paul 13th, Bradley 14th. Um, don't know if you saw, by the way, Bradley Smith, the state of Bradley Smith's finger, um, which they showed on the BT Sport coverage when they interviewed him at the weekend. It is a right mangled mess. Um, the I have not did, seen it. I do not want to see yeah. it. I learned my lesson off the Christian last yeah, week. It's in that same category, trust me. Oh, um, God. Yeah, they um, they showed it on. Uh, I think it was on the qualifying coverage on Saturday when they interviewed Bradley um, outside KTM's Star Trek style um, hospitality that they've got these days yeah. in uh, in the pits um, yes. in the paddock in MotoGP. Um, they showed the finger of Brandy Smith that he re-injured at uh, Catalonia, wasn't it, in qualifying where he didn't start the race. He crashed in for FP4 and didn't start. Um, it's not one for the screamish. It's not a good look. Am- and, amputate it for God's yeah, sake. It kind of um, explains why he's not been in the best of form since then, because um, yeah. it's clearly a bit of a mess that finger that he's uh, he's having to ride with. Um, but he he rode through it and got points at the weekend. The final result then um, from the MotoGP Grand Prix of Germany at the Saxon Ring Marquez, the winner from Folger and Pedrosa, another surprising podium. Certainly um, the second of those three. Vinales and Rossi fourth and fifth for Yamaha. As uh, their factory team, Bautista 6th, Alessio Spargo for a pretty 7th, Dovizioso 8th, Zarco 9th, and Cal Crutchlow uh, completing the top 10. Uh, Jorge Lorenzo 11th, ahead of Petrucci, and then the KTMs of Paul and Bradley 13th and 14th, uh, and Jack Miller the final point in 15th. Uh, Mick Calio, Carol Abraham, Tito Abat, and Loris Baz were just outside of that. They failed to score. You'll notice I haven't mentioned a Suzuki yet. Um, and there's good reason. Andrea only crashed, although he probably would have been top 10 had he not crashed. Because um, he did have solid pace, it has to be said, despite his fall. Um, and Alex Rins was the last runner to finish. Um, he did not enjoy his return from injury. Okay. On this occasion, he'll be hoping for better after the summer break. Suzuki need a pickup uh, when we return at Bruno. All right, let's go on to Moto2. Um, and carrying on the theme from MotoGP... Um, of Tech 3 and impressive showings. Um, we had yet more proof to Ray on Saturday afternoon um, that Hervé Poncheral knows a talent when he sees one. Because after Modo 2 qualifying, I think while it was unfolding and we were watching it and watching the pole position change hands in those drying conditions, we were all frantically Googling, who the hell is Hector Garzo? Yeah, I was like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Who's this guy? Um, yeah, I, I genuinely had, like, no idea who Hector Garzo was. I didn't have, I had no idea that he was basically um, <laughs> yeah. a, a CEV rider that was, yeah. that was filling in for CEV rider. He replaced, he replaced the injured Xavi Fieche, who injured himself um, at Assen. Um, yep. But the guy in qualifying, Edrate, the guy was following Frankie Morbidelli, the dominant championship leader around in qualifying, and basically matching him lap for lap. <laughs> Yeah, he, he, he just refused to fall out of the top five, no matter how fast other guys were going around him. And it's like, I don't know how Poncherol does it. Like, I want his eye for talent and his luxury numbers because, like, this just keeps coming up with him where he's, he's able just to pick dudes out who can ride the nuts off a motorcycle. It's it's a, it's an impressive knack. And, yeah, Hector Garza was the standout name in a chaotic qualifying session that hovered between wet and dry all, all session long. And... Uh, 
yeah, I, I, I love that despite how crazy it got, Frankie Moore they did, uh, did end up on top in the end by a quarter of a second. But uh, yeah, it, the way we got there was very interesting indeed. Yeah, <laughs> stealing that pole right at the end from Alex Marquez. How very Moto2 um, yeah. as well. But yeah, Hector Garzo, he's only 19. Um, so he's, he's a young rider with a lot of time on his side. And he's, um, he's towards the front of that Moto2 CEV Championship as well. Um, but yeah, I don't think anyone was quite expecting that from him um, at the weekend. 19 years old, and unpredictably, he is a Spaniard, as uh, many great young riders is these days, Hector. So uh, yeah, he's, um, yeah, if Vieje gets snapped up by another top team, um, which is highly probable in Moto2, because he's, uh, he's a rider in demand, then um, yeah, Tech 3 are in good hands, aren't they? They'll just call Garza up. Um, yep. and they'll be happy um, the production line continues for that team um, as it does for Mike BDS who uh, again have no shortage of riders within their mitts uh, who are going places in the future Morbidelli is going to MotoGP uh, next year and uh, this weekend Dre made it increasingly likely he's going to go there as champion the hammer came down on the Moto2 championship this year I mean we were waiting for a round like this a round that was you know going to make a big difference um, to the way the championship fight's been going. And, yeah, it certainly felt that way um, going in. And, like, Morbidelli didn't look all that comfortable at the front in the first mm-hmm. half of the race. He was getting roughed up a little bit. I mean, it looked like Thomas Lutzi was the most comfortable man out there at the start, but then he crashes it, and it's like, uh-oh. And then Alex Marquez was the guy out in front, and it was like, okay, maybe Marquez will take this one, and then he falls. It's like, oh no! You've basically gift wrapped Morbidelli one hand on on the championship. It's it's a problem, and like we've talked about this a little bit before we went on the air, and we basically just said straight up that this is what the Moto Two Championship now probably feels like. Yeah. It's probably felt like this for a while, but now points wise, it actually adds up a little bit more now. So yeah, like it's. I can't say I'm entirely surprised at this because Morbidelli has been the standout guy in races so far this season. But it, like Luti was around making it interesting for a little while. And uh, yeah, it's, it's it's the way he's shaking out. Morbidelli just gets over the line over Miguel Oliveira, but he's now put you know a real foot on the neck of the championship now because it's, his two main rivals have both had DNFs to their name and he's won. Yeah, we'll talk about Luti in a moment and how damaging that was to his hopes of a, of a first Moto2 title. But from Morbidelli's point of view, it was it was a strange race, as you say, in many respects, because he had that battle with Luti. Luti then falls off, and you think Morbidelli's got a comfortable run to the flag, and then he gets chased down by Oliveira. Um, yeah. And then and then they get chased down right at the end by Bagnaia and the basically the three-way Italian fight for the final podium spot. Eventually caught them on the last lap. Yeah. Um, but it just goes to show again, Dre, just how much of a classy operator Morbidelli is. Because at the rate Oliveira caught him, I thought he was dead for all money. I thought the, yes. by catching him at half second a lap, Oliveira was just going to cruise past and go on to win. Um, but Morbidelli not only kept Oliveira behind him for lap after lap with relative ease, um, but once Oliveira caught him, snapped back straight again and held him to the flag. Absolutely, he 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 pulled up the old over under on the final corner, and on that that run up over there, never quite know who's going to come over the line first. And Morbidelli gets it by half a wheel, basically 0. 0.06 of a second, two thirds of a tenth, uh, so to speak. And 
Yeah, it was a very close finish. And yet, like you say, well, Oliveira was the fastest man on track by a country mile in the second half of that race. And it looked like he was going to leave Morbidelli for dead on that one. And yeah, it's like Frankie found another gear in him. It was it was crazy how he was able to keep Miguel behind him. And, you know, Miguel turned it into a dogfight. Um, you know, and Frankie was always in contention and he, he made the right move at the right time, got his got the nose over the line first and took what was another gritty result. We saw it at Aston where he had to fight right to the death of Thomas Luti, but he came out on top and it, it, it's, it's like Morbidelli seems to be getting more of this complete package where he's not only able to win races or he leads from the front and he's got the outright pace, but he's now able to win these tactical races and win these pack fights and, you know, win races when they, when they get a bit scrappy, that Morbidelli has got the ability to get his elbows out and win. And that's probably why he's going to MotoGP and most likely will be doing so as champion. A sixth win out of nine. That's oh, very right, impressive. Yeah, I was just going to mention that. You've got to think records might be being chased down later in the year. We're only halfway through the season. He's won six races already. Um, yeah. which is an incredible strike rate. It's just, it just happens that Luti's done such a good job of keeping in, in, in sight by being on the podium so often until last mm. weekend, Dre. Um, and you could see the pain, the anguish in his face um, when he tried to pick the bike up out of the gravel because he knew, Tom Luti knew, given the way the championship was unfolding, how much he was going to be punished for that. The, the, the podiums were basically keeping him in contention. Now, you've got to go there and start taking some big chunks out of Morbidelli, which the form Mobbiali's in isn't going to be easy to do. So yeah, how do you take points out of a guy that's won six out of nine races in Moto2 this season? Good luck with that, yeah, basically. when you haven't won one yet. Yeah, like... <laughs> Morbidelli's bad days were the only reason that Thomas Luti was still in the mix, basically dancing with podiums. I mean, Luti still got seven out of the first nine on the podium. The problem is, is that the guy in front of you's won six races and you've won none. And that's like the race wins are always going to add up more than the podiums do in the long run. That's that's how it's going to be. Um, so. Luti's now going to have to start winning some races, which is which is crazy because we all know Luti's good for two or three wins a year. He hasn't actually won one yet. He's had seven seconds or thirds. It's very weird how it's all shaken out for Luti this season. But uh, you're right, he's now got to take some risks and he's now going to have to start to try and win in some races. Otherwise, this championship's over. Yeah, and only one pole as well this year. It's, it's amazing how he's only had one pole, no wins, but he's been so high up in the championship. He's... Uh, the perennial bridesmaid, unfortunately, uh, in Moto2, Thomas Lutie, of course, last year's championship runner-up, and it looks like he might well be finishing this season's runner-up as well. He certainly needs to start winning as soon as Moto2 returns uh, at Bruno at the start of August. Um, Alex Marquez um, also has to start winning pretty quickly. I mean, in, in terms of Alex Marquez, kind of like Lutie, I suppose, we know he's going to get another shot at this because Marquez is going to be in Moto2 next year. Um but Dre, it looks like he might have to wait until the next year. 61 points off the lead looks like too big a bridge to get. Yeah, it's, it's a shame for Alex Marquez because he has improved. He has definitely got the overall pace now. He can start thinking about winning more races. It, this one just hasn't really worked out for him in that sense. And it's a shame because, again, the pace is there. The, uh, the maturity is starting to come together with Alex Marquez, but he, he's still capable of those bad races where he will he will bin one and he's binned it here and that's probably the end of Alex Marquez as a title contender maybe next year when he'll be the leader in that team with with Joanne Mir. That'll be interesting, but just not Alex Marquez's year by the looks of it. 
No, he, that's only his second non-score of the season. His first non-finish because he did get to the flag in Argentina, although albeit 21st after his crash. Um, and all of the races he's finished, the seven out of nine he has finished, he's been in the top six, including those two wins. Um, but unfortunately, um, there's only been one other podium apart from that. He's had a couple of fourths, he's had a fifth and a sixth, and um, they're not going to get it done, unfortunately. When Morbidelli's in such form, and Luti, uh, fourths, fifths, and sixths aren't quite enough. You need to be with them on the podium to keep them in check. And as it is as well, Dre, he's now lost third in the championship to Oliveira, um, who has moved up to third now with that second place, equaling his best of the season, which he took in Argentina at the start of the season, um, and his fourth podium of the year. Um, and it's surely now a matter of time, a matter of when rather than if, Oliveira and KTM are Moto2 winners. Yeah, it, it, they've read like it's been one of the under-talked about stories about how good KTM's Moto Two bike has been. Where they've entered as a, on a brand new chassis, un, unproven, untested, and yet they've had four podium finishes with Miguel Oliveira. Brad Binder, I think, has been fantastic all season long, despite battling injuries, and they, they're capable of winning races on this thing straight out of the box. That's very impressive from the KTM factory crew. Um, they're doing a really great job. Miguel Oliveira is easily repaying the Akiyo faith that he had him in, in, in Moto3. He's turned himself into a real elite Moto2 rider now, um, where it's no fluke he's third overall. He's doing a fantastic, fantastic job for just his second year in the class. Easy to forget that one as well. That he's, This is only year two for Miguel, and it's year three for Alex Marquez. Um, he's, he's vastly less experienced compared to the two guys. Exactly. Loot is in year eight. <laughs> Yeah, Yuki's in the eight. I think this is year four for Morbidelli. Um, so the lack of experience that Miguel Oliveira has got compared to the guys in front of him, like he could be a very big MotoGP target for 2019, maybe, um, by the looks of it, because the kid's got something. It's obvious he's got something here. And, you know, he's only a second year, and he's now a top-tier Moto2 runner on a bike that, what is, is basically an experiment right now because we, we, it's not had any real formal testing until this year. It's a brand new bike, and yet it's competitive. So, way to go, Miguel Oliveira. Very impressive stuff. Hmm. Much like Morbidelli and Marquez, he is within a Moto2 team, which has a MotoGP team in the, oh, same, yeah. in the same umbrella. KTM, of course, have their MotoGP team. Now, without wanting to talk Paul or Bradley out of a ride, um, Oliveira, should he go on to succeed with the KDM Moto2 team surely would be first in the queue for a MotoGP ride with that team so that will be one to follow certainly as next year rolls along for Oliveira where we would expect him I think we both expect him don't we to be a championship contender uh, in Moto2 next year Oliveira um, if that KTM continues to improve um, it'll be interesting to see what kind of position Peko Bagnaia is in by that stage Dre because for a Moto2 rookie once again this kid is doing a phenomenal job his third podium by the halfway stage of the season Pekka Bagnaia is a bit special, isn't he? And um, another lap, and he could have arguably been in there with Oliveira and Morbidelli too. Yeah, only half a second off the win. Him and Simone Corsi, because Corsi can't help but get involved in these things every once in a while. But uh, but Pekko, yeah, like, the, the kid's a bit special. It's obvious. Again, like you, you can put him in the same boat with Miguel Oliveira, where like I was reading some like David Emmett City season post a couple of weeks ago, and. Like, David said straight up, a MotoGP team boss, like, looked to the sky and gushed about, like, the possibility of having a guy like Banyaya in his team, which kind of says a lot about, like, the, the, the stock if, if this guy in the paddock is very high right now. Um, so, 
it's going to be interesting how, how this plays out because Peko is, again, looking like a top-tier rider in the class already. And this is his rookie season. He, he, he's got that alien sort of instant adaptability that uh, is normally a dead giveaway that the guy's a bit special. And he, he seems to have got that now where he's right in the mix. He's right up there. He's had four podiums. He obviously inherited one from Catalonia. Um, where he struggled a little bit there, but he's now fifth in the championship. He's now probably the best of the rest of these super elite dudes, like Morbidelli, Luci, Oliveira, and Marquez. They've been the clear four best guys in the class this year. Pekka Bagnaia is now fifth, and he's ahead of Pacini in the points now as well, after interesting uh, changes in, 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 in uh, scoring. Yeah, but he, um, he's, he's ahead of guys who have won in this class, like Pacini, yes. like Nakagami. Uh, Dominic Egerton's ninth in the championship. You know, those are good guys. I mean, Baldassari's further down. He's won a race, although he's had injury problems this year, of course, from his crash in Assen. Um, but these are some big scalps Banyaya's taken, and that decision that Sky Pio 46 took to tie him down for next year, early, early on, um, is looking better and better with every single round that goes by with Banyaya doing such a good job. Um, so we know well he'll be next year. Um, Two of the rookies, though, that deserve a mention, and much like in MotoGP, where Folger's performances up until last weekend kind of got ignored with Zarco's relative success, um, we've also kind of been guilty of overlooking Jorge Navarro and Brad Binder for the jobs that they've been doing yes. because Banyaya has been so good. Um, but Jorge Navarro, Dre, um, kind of the invisible man in many ways of, of Moto2. He was in Moto3, Moto3 last year, although he did win a couple. Um, he kind of went under the radar a bit because Brad Binder was so good, but... Two top six results for Navarro now within that Grassini team that Sam Lowe's vacated. Um, and Brad Binder, too, following over the line in seventh, um, which is his second top ten of the year, given his injury problems. We've also had Fabio Quattararo, who's come on strong lately. He's had a couple of top tens in recent races. This is a strong group of rookies we're looking at in Moto2. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a better group than we may have given them credit for in the early going. Um, Navarro's been in the points a lot this year. Grassini, I don't think they're quite the outfit they used to be, probably in Moto3 and Moto2. They're kind of getting away with it on name value, but Navarro seems to be putting it together now in Moto2 a little bit stronger, and Binder has been fighting. Apparently, he's still in pain on his arm. Wow. Because of all the surgeries, haven't it? When yet, despite that, he's he's in, he's in seventh place. A, a, a fantastic result from from Brad Binder again. And like, then it's 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 easy to ignore them again, like you say, because of you know Baniaya and you know Bassini's have been a breakout star this year, and Morbidelli's been so good. So it's it's easily you know a, a difficult situation where. You know, it's easy to gloss over certain younger drivers, younger riders in there that have not stood out quite so much. But yeah, I, I, you're absolutely right. Where like they've they've been great in their own right, and in a vacuum, they've been fantastic. But we've not seen it yet. Where you know, like they've had that real outstanding like shout out in there. But yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how, how it plays out. But. Yeah, Binder and Navarro have been fantastic. Yeah, they're, they're two riders that are surely going to get better next year. Um, when Moto2, again, is going to have a bit of a clear out with, with the expected champion moving up in Morbidelli. Nakagami set to move up as well. Um, so, again, there will be spaces at the front of this field um, to move into. And we already know that John Mir is moving up next season. So this, this new wave are already starting to take over Moto2 um, as well. Here's how the race finished in Germany. Then Morbidelli, the winner by a smidge from Oliveira, um, with Banyaya completing the podium. 
Bellingham just ahead of Corsi and Pessini. They were your top five. Navarro and Binder next up, sixth and seventh, uh, ahead of the two Germans, Cortesi and Schrotter for the Dynavolt team. Cortesi, who of course qualified on the front row, fell to eighth. Um, top home rider. That doesn't look like it's going to be enough incidentally to keep his job at that team. Um, with Dominique Agut so strongly linked with that Dynavolt team. Um, but Cortesi did get eighth ahead of Schrotter with Nakagami in tenth. The rest of the points were taken by Hafis Sayarin. Uh, Remy Gardner, so um, even Tech 3's other rider still score points, so they really could do no hey. at the moment. Uh, Remy in 12th, uh, Garzo crashed early on in the race, Quattararo 13th, Simeon 14th, and Stefano Manzi, um, another, another rookie scoring points, the forgotten rookie. Um, Manzi in 15th, the guy that everyone was stunned that Skybl 46 had signed. Um, he got his first point uh, in 15th at the weekend. Uh, championship standings then, Morbidelli leads it by 34 now, which is a healthy, healthy margin. Seconds to someone break over Luti. Uh, Miguel Oliveira is up to third now ahead of Marquez. Um, four points ahead of Marquez, but they are both over 50 points off the championship lead. Uh, Peko Banyaya is best of the rest, as Dre mentioned, in fifth on 78. Um, which is 96 off the outright lead. He's ahead of Pasini by five. Yep. Uh, Nakagami in seventh. Corsi eighth. Dominic Egerton ninth. And Marcel Schroeter completes the top ten. Uh, Moto three then. And we're going to have to rattle through this quickly. Um, which is just as well, I suppose. Because this wasn't, by Moto three standards, um, much of a classic. It was still a good race. But Moto three has been dealing in absolute stormers so far this year. Um, just a five-man breakaway this time. Um, one again by oh, no. one again, yeah, just the five, I know. Um, but um, one again by Joan Mia, who it just so happens, Dre, this year. Anytime this guy has a bad round, which creates some questions around him, the guy just pops back at the next round, answers those questions, and goes and wins the thing, doesn't he? Yep, yeah, that was the old punch to the nose right there from Joan Mia to Romano Fanati. I think that was I think that might have been revenge for the circuit of the Americas earlier this season. But yeah, you're absolutely right, Mia. You know, he was roughed up a bit in that final lap at Aston, but he comes right back and pretty much dominates the weekend. Um, Paul and, you know, well, actually almost pole position because of Mark. Because, you know, well, that's it, that's it. He should have had pole, and we all thought he had pole in qualifying when it started to rain with a quarter of an hour to go. The team started high-fiving and patting him on the back. They decided yep. to sit back, and then with five minutes to go, they decided, mm, should we go out? It looks like it's drying out, you know. They didn't go out. Aaron Cannon did and picked them to pole. Yes, yeah, can it doing very can it things. Um, more on him later, but uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Joanne Mir was, you know, looking like he was going to go on pole position, but might have been, the, you know, the the bet that he hadn't because the way the form books played out this season, not a single Moto Three rider that's qualified on pole has gone on to win the race. Um, I think the last time that happened was Brad Binder in Australia was the last time a Moto Free rider was qualified from Poland and gone on to win. Um, so it's been a jinx so far. So, you know, nine times this season that's happened and nine times that they've not come out on top. But yeah, Mir basically gets up there, you know, does what he does what he gets to do. And yeah, rocks it up. It's 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 a. Uh, very impressive stuff from Mir again. It doesn't feel like Mir's won five of these this season, but yet there he has, and he's now got a, a, a forty around forty point lead now. If my maths is right, yeah, yeah. thirty seven clear uh, of Romano Fanati in second place. And um, I'm trying to work out which of these two it is. I'm trying to work out whether Joan Mir is a brilliant tactician or Romano Fanati is a rubbish tactician, or whether it's a bit of both. Um, because we mentioned this last week, how Romano Fanati so often seems to get beaten in a last lap battle. Um, yeah, we do. yeah. He, he so often puts himself in the position to go and win one of these and then doesn't finish it off. Um, 
And Joanne Mir so often does. And I guess, Dre, perhaps that's the difference between a good rider and a great one. Yeah, I mean, Fanati is, you know, he's got great racecraft. Um, he's, he's, he's a hard racer. He's always been then elbows out sort of dude. He's had great speed on occasion. Like his qualifying has definitely improved as the years have gone on. He's now probably the most established veteran in Moto3 now. Second in the championship. Second in the championship, and yet despite that, what, just the one win, I think, for Fanati yeah, this year? one win this year, which was at Le... No, it was at the Second Americas, wasn't it? Second the Americas, and yeah, he basically bullied Canet that day. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't think he's going to get away with that one again. But if Fanati, that's been the story of the season for him, where, you know, Fanati has been missed and near missed this season he's he's had chances to win multiple races this year he set it up well for final laps showdowns and well it's not quite come together for him and this was another case where he's now given up another five points to Joanne Mir in a race he very easily could have won on another day and it's 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 frustrating how it's turned out but yeah like it's gonna be that could be the difference between Fanati again like you say being a a good rider or, or a great rider Fanati he seems to have. He seems to lack that real clutch gene at the end of a race to really make the difference. I mean, we've seen what we, we've called "quote unquote" lap of the gods before from Mir, from Jorge Martin, and and in other cases. But um, yeah, Fernandez just doesn't seem to have that ace in the no. ace in the hole anymore that other guys to have. It's a shame, really. No, that's three second places in a row for for Ronaldo now, and uh, four of them this year. Four in the last six races, uh, Fernandez finished second. Um, so, he, as I say, he keeps putting himself in these positions to win one and then just doesn't finish it off. Um, Aaron Canet put himself in good position, in pole position, um, after qualifying. But, um, Dre, this guy has a rather unwanted record. He's been on pole position three times now and failed to score a point in any of those races. Canet! Uh, he'd be right up there if he cashed some of these in, wouldn't he? Um, it's a real shame because, um, yeah, Canet has, has been really, really good. This season again, his one lap speed has been great. Obviously, he you know he's, he's won a couple of really great close races, and yeah, just didn't quite come together um, in in the races. Often again, made a mistake and he's, he's crashed and he's now really hurt his championship chances now going forward. It's a real shame because Canet has been again the, like easily a, a top three runner in the class all season long, pretty much, and he's now fifty five behind Joanne Mir. So. Again, it's going to be a long shot for Canet to get back into this one now, but uh, it's a shame. But again, hey, maybe it's a good thing he's staying around now. Who knows? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, we both said on this show, didn't we, last week, he was the guy we thought was most likely to chase Mia down um, in the second half of the season. Fanati just doesn't give you that vibe. As I say, he just continues to find a way not to win races. Um, whereas yeah. Canet just seems to find, he seems to take wins when they're not really there. Um, so. Exactly. Yeah, you, you kind of fear that Canet's goose is cooked for this season um, and that he's going to have to go again next year, although he's still um, third in the points and just 18 behind Fanati, so he's certainly up there um, with a chance to finish in the top three overall. Um, Jorge Martin is fourth in the points, although he didn't ride. We told you this last week on the show. He uh, broke his ankle in free practice. 
which meant that he didn't start the race, um, compounding a bad weekend for the Grishini team in Moto3 because Dijan Antonio only finished 11th uh, in this class. Uh, another great outing, though, for the Platinum Bay Real Estate team, or as we're going to call them now, the uh, real factory KTM team uh, in right. Moto3 because they continue to set the standard for that team. Danny Kent couldn't even redress that balance last weekend um, for Red Bull KTM IO um, because for the... Let's count these up. How many times is this now? Is that the fifth time now this season that Marcos Ramirez has been the top KTM rider in a Grand Prix? Uh, and the Finally a podium too. Yeah, the fifth time in six races um, that Ramirez has been the leading KTM rider. Um, and yeah, Dre, there's not a lot we could say about Ramirez that we haven't said already, but at least this time he has a trophy and some champagne to show for it. He deserves one. My God, he's been a real trooper on that Platinum Bay Real Estate KTM. And to be fair, he had a bit of help this time around to get Budiger and Otel in the top five as well on this occasion. KTM were clearly a bit stronger um, this time round. Um, so, yeah, you can't you can't really moan on that one. But yeah, it's. It's it's a it's a great result for Marcos, and again he's like he's going to get snapped up by a top team next year. I think that's obvious the way the way he's he's, he's ridden out of his skin the first half of this season, and um, yeah he's been so so good. And I'm glad that he like I don't think there's been a single rider in the field that's deserved the podium more than Marcos Ramirez this year, and I'm glad he's got one because. KTM has struggled, and yeah, he's coming back and he's doing real good. Yeah, both of those Platinum Bay riders appear to be in demand, because I remember um, the BT Sport commentators mentioning uh, a couple of rounds ago that apparently um, the Red Bull KTM IO team are very, very keen on Darren Binder um, to sign for that team. Ah. Of course, they took Brandt to the World Championship last year, and uh, it sounds like they're very keen on Darren too. Um, I still have a hunch that, that Ramirez will end up at Leopard purely based on the fact that he rode for them in CEV last year. Um, but we shall see. That's just a hunch. I, I have no knowledge based on that. That is just a hunch. Um, yeah. but, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if that yeah. happens. Um, Ramirez then a first podium. Bullock back on form, sort of, is how I've turned it in the uh, in the running order that we've got for this show because fourth is still not really where we expect Bulliger to be based on his form last year. But um, based on where KTM and that Sky team have been, fourth is a decent enough result for that team um, and as good it's, as we've seen um, from Bulliger this season that is his best result of the season so far would you believe um, in 2017 um, one rider that we should mention though um, who didn't make the finish didn't score points but deserves a shout out um, is Tony Arbolino who qualified towards the front and was running with that leading group it was a leading quartet um, plus Arbolino yes. early on um, a guy who is 10 years younger than me um, because he is he is only 16, turns 17 next month, um, the same month where I turned 27. Um, but, a, a, but a guy who um, is riding for that Simoncelli Foundation team, the 658 Squadra Course team, who are having a very, very good season under the radar with Arbolino and Suzuki. Um, but another kid, Dre, who just goes to show just how strong and how deep the talent field is in Moto3. This is a guy who's... Not really amounted to much so far, but at the age of 16, he's already running in the top five and challenging the front guys. He's 16. Like, where has my life gone? I just, I, 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 there's a hashtag on Twitter right now that goes, that signs that you're old. And I'm like, we're, we're talking about Moto Freeriders that were born in the year friggin' 2000. It, it's, 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 it's crazy. Um, it's, it's all sorts of crazy. But yeah, Tony Arbolino, great, great job from him again. He'd ridden like he'd been here five years already. 
and uh, yeah, they did, they've done, done a cracking, cracking job since then. So it's a shame he didn't, he didn't quite come through in the race. Maybe a bit of experience will come up for him. But uh, yeah, great job for Marbellino. All right, so the Moto3 result then overall. Joan Mir, the winner then from Fanati by a tenth of a second in the end. Uh, Ramirez just a tenth further back in third. Then came Bulliger in fourth on his own after Arbolino's crash. Ertl in fifth. Um, winning the battle of the second group ahead of Bastianini, Livio Loy, that's his best for a while in seventh, Bo Benchneider, who held onto the handlebars beyond the finish line this time in eighth, um, Tatsuki Suzuki, who was the sole 658 rider to see the checker flag in ninth, and the aforementioned in-demand Darren Binder taking tenth for Platinum Bay Real Estate. Championship standings then are led by Mir, whose lead is now up to 37 points over Fanati in second. Fanati has taken that from Canet at the weekend. Uh, Canet falling to third. Jorge Martin, who didn't start, as we mentioned earlier on with his injury, is fourth on 89. Four points ahead of his teammate, Dijan Antonio, who actually climbs a place into fifth, despite only finishing 11th. That's because John McPhee crashed out. Uh, he's down to sixth. Ramirez is up to seventh ahead of Mino. So Ramirez is now officially the top KTM rider in the World Championship uh, in seventh position, ahead of Mino by a point. Uh, Bastianini is ninth, and Juan Fran Guevara is tenth, still ahead of Bulliger, despite Bulliger's podium at the weekend. Next round of the MotoGP, Moto2 and Moto3 Championships is in a month's time at Bruno in the Czech Republic. Right then, let's have back to British Saws and talk British Superbikes at Snetterton. And last weekend, Dre, we flagged this one up as a shaky round. A round that Shaky Bone was expected to dominate. And for once, we got a prediction 100% spot on. Shaky Yay! absolutely crushed them. We got one right. It was about friggin' time, wasn't it? Um, yeah, if, if it was a round that I reckon Shaky would take the double in and I turned out to be absolutely on the money. Um, Quite literally, yeah. in your case. Literally, yeah, it was part of a treble I had. It was Marquez, Morbidelli, and Shaky, and uh, uh, backflips may have been had in my bookies when <laughs> that one came through. Um, so yeah, thanks, Shaky, much appreciated. He was the last one yeah. he to come through. Yeah. He how, did much, how much were you shitting yourself when Folger was giving chase to Marquez? Just a little bit, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> slightly, um, slightly. Uh, but yeah, Shaky Burn again, like race one was a lot more straightforward than race two in the end. But yeah, Shaky was just. Very, very comfortable. I, 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 we mentioned it last week that uh, lo last year it was around this sort of time where Ducati really turned the screw on the championship, where Shaky got a lot more comfortable, found some upgrades for the bike, and then Shaky was a different guy in the second half of the season where only, I think, really Haslam was the constant threat for him. And now, like this this happened again yeah, with, with, with Haslam not really riding to his best still nursing injury and whatnot with obviously Glenn Irwin was, was, was not taking part and a lot of other struggles in there, but shaky took advantage of the situation in full and, you know, delivered a perfect 50 out of 50. Mm, and it's pretty clear. I mean, I know it, it, there's only so much you can do um, given the points that are on, on the table and 
kind of reminds me a little bit of World Super Sport in that the, the rest of the field haven't really punished Shaky Burns' absence as much as they perhaps could have, could and shouldn't have done um, to try and keep him out of that top six. Like I say, there's only so much he can do because in the form he's in, he's probably going to make the showdown anyway, um, given yeah. how well he's gone. But what would really worry me if I was a rival of Shaky and BSB is this quote that he uh, gave to MCN um, at the weekend um, where he said, I'm chuffed to bits for the fast young riders coming through and you have to think they're only going to get stronger. But at the same time, that doesn't mean the rest of us are getting any weaker. Just this weekend, I've made another little step in something I do in my preparation for races and I'm always looking for improvements like that. Don't ever think for one moment that I'm going to stand still because I'm not. Even at the age of 40, this guy still finds new ways to improve himself and new motivation to go out there and win again. Absolutely. I mean, like this, this has been a challenging year for Shaky. I mean, he's had to deal with with injuries. You know, the unfortunate concussion in the opening round, and then Brands Hatch where he threw away a pretty straightforward result. It's been it's been a struggle for him uh, at times this season, and he's not had it go his way like he's normally had it before. But again, if anything, that seems to have only inspired him to be able to. Uh, to, to motivate him to come back and climb the mountain again because it's it's crazy that Shaky is still just so motivated for this at the age of 14. He's already a four-time champion looking for number five and he's he's doing he's doing such a good job right now. It's very, very impressive. And yeah, I, like, you can only applaud a guy that, you know, a guy that's still at his age doing as well as he is. Mm, yeah, and he, he says, he, he joked as well, it feels like my season has finally started, um, which is amazing because, of course, oh, he, had really? that, he had that false start to the season where he didn't show up, or, well, he did show up, but couldn't actually race uh, on the opening day because of that concussion he picked up in warm-up. And, yeah, he's just getting into that groove, isn't he, where he's starting to look ominously quick. And, albeit, this was always going to be a strong, shaky and a strong Ducati round. They do really seem to have the top end uh, that the Kawasaki doesn't quite have. Um this was also a bit of a return to form for Yamaha, most notably Josh Brooks, um, the Amble Hyatt tag Yamaha team, uh, because, of course, McCams have always been quick, even if they've not quite been seeing the checkered flag as often as they'd wish. Um, but Josh Brooks looked like a rider under threat uh, heading into Snetterton for his showdown spot because he'd basically been dealing in consistent top six, top eight finishes, um, with the exception of that crash in the first race at Knock Hill. So this was a timely return to form for Brooks to get those two second places and strengthen his showdown spot again. He said it himself. It was like it felt like the Yamaha of two years ago where he would go on to dominate the showdown and, you know, a, a beaten down so big we were questioning whether the entire format needed to be scrapped. Um, and... That was the best I've seen Brooks look as a rider since then. That was very, very strong, um, especially in race two, where he really gave Shaky a good run for his money on that second race, um, right towards the end. Only a couple of attempts. Again, those two were so far ahead of O'Halloran and the rest in race two. But again, like a couple of second places, you can't moan at all. 40 points is a great haul for Josh Brooks. And just like that, he's now in a very solid showdown spot when he was one of the guys that, he, that looked like he was on the brink two rounds ago. So... Yeah, a real, a real nice turnaround from Brooks, and he's now probably going to make the showdown, I reckon. Yeah, and he uh, he says there is more to come from that bike as well, which would um, be music to the ears, in particular Rebecca James, who will be uh, cheering him on if he makes the showdown uh, later in the season. Another guy who looks likely now to make the showdown, Dre, is Jason O'Halloran, who couldn't quite hit the heights of last year, where, of course, he won. Um, taking his one and only BSB win for Honda 
um, in the final uh, corner of the first race at Snetterton, beating his teammate Dan Linfoot to the punch. Um, two thirds, though, from this time, two podium positions for Halloran, and um, he continues to make steady progress on that Honda Fireblade. And he might be one of those guys thinking if this progress, this rate of progress continues, he might have that bike just where he wants it when the showdown comes along. That's a very good point. Yeah, Honda looked looked a bit lost at sea with their new with their new Fireblade at the start of the season, but they've gotten better and better as the season's gone on. And this time round, yeah, both guys like, Halloran on the podium in both races. Only about seven seconds off the win in both cases. They're getting there. If they can find another maybe three tenths, four tenths of a second a lap, they could be right where they want to be when the showdown is. They could really be knocking on the door with some wins. And O'Halloran's more than capable enough as a rider to be able to do it. It's a matter of whether they can get the bike into true in, into true win status before that. They're running out of time. But they've, they've made great progress as the season has gone and as they've gotten used to that Fireblade. They've really started getting it together. So, yeah, as time goes on, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to look forward to seeing where, where Honda ends up. And that will be an interesting one. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're getting there. And uh, it's, it's, it is surprising still to me that it's O'Halloran, not Linfoot, or the fact that it's only one of the two. Because even when O'Halloran was the strong rider of the two last year, Linfoot was still pretty close to him. Yeah. Um, but Linfoot is way outside the top 10 at the moment, or he's, in fact, he's just crept into the top 10 in the championship now at the expense of Ellison um, last weekend. So he's probably going to just miss out on a showdown spot, even if he does sit the same kind of form his teammates in. But O'Halloran looks pretty safe in there at the moment, um, as do the two Kawasaki's of JG Speedfit, Luke Mossy and Leon Haslam, who are first and third in the championship standings at the moment on pure points, although there is a story behind that, which we'll come on to in a bit with the podium points, which will reshape the championship standings when the showdown starts. Um, in, in many ways, kind of a wasted weekend for them. Neither rider made it onto the podium, so neither rider added to their podium credit tally um but right. to be fair dre was this weekend always going to be a bit of a damage limitation job for that team given that that kawasaki doesn't quite seem to have that top end to match the ducati for instance uh haslam only able to manage a fourth um and luke mossy couldn't even manage that he was outside of the points in altogether in race one because he had a crash or he had a mechanical based on a crashing warm-up and then an eighth for haslam and a tenth for mossy in race two where that's about all the Kawasaki could muster. Yeah, it, it's never gone particularly well for Kawasaki. It's 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 a it's a top end sort of track, and you know Haslam's always struggled on the softer of the rear tires. He, he, he a, if you can run the soft tire around Snetterton, you'll do very well. If you if you're on the harder compound, you're always going to be playing catch up. And don't get me wrong, Haslam's fourth in race one was was a fantastic result, given he's still nursing a bad injury. Uh, all things considered, but you're right. Kawasaki is this is not the most comfortable around for him. And it wasn't comfortable for him particularly last year either, when Shaky re well, cleaned up. Um, you know, he had he had a, that real uh, what for me uh, a, a season changing weekend in, in terms of form. Um, so yeah, like Kawasaki, that was about what they could get, and they they, they they struggled in there, but you know they found a way to make it work. And yeah, it's it's. It's it's a shame because again, like Luke Mossy, it feels like another dropped opportunity for him. But um, I think that was about all Kawasaki could have managed anyway. So they just got to take it, dust themselves off, and hey, maybe come back stronger next time. Yeah, break problems for Luke Mossy in that first race, which cost him. Although that was a bit of a legacy of having a crash in morning one, which caused the team to make a basically a hasty repair job to get him out for race one. And Haslam, 
uh, as he said himself, Snetterton last year was one of the team's weakest rounds, so they were kind of coming into the weekend with relatively low expectations, but they might have been hoped in their, hope, their wildest dreams they might pinch a podium credit here or there. They didn't quite do it. Um, the one Kawasaki rider who really did um, make it work, and the top-scoring Kawasaki rider across the weekend uh, was Jake Dixon, who did go for the softer option rear tyre in race one and ended up sort of fading the end to sixth. Went for the harder option in race two and was patient with it. Came through the field the longer the race went on to finish fourth. And to his great credit, Dre, we did ask the question. I think everyone asked the question after Knock Hill. Is this a flash in the pan or is this the new Jake Dixon who's going to be up here from weekend to weekend? Well, he's kind of given us his answer, hasn't he? Because he was a top Kawasaki rider at Snetterton and fourth and sixth have put him right in the showdown mix. Yeah, this was not a fluke. He's he's clearly got something now. He's found something on that Kawasaki in the in the last couple of rounds. Because all of a sudden he's, he's looking like a showdown runner, which is something he just wasn't doing in the, the first half of the season. And now he's really got his stuff together now, and he's really up there challenging for podiums. Challenging, you know, obviously he had he had the double victory last time out, and you know he's built on that. Another pair of good results here. Those showdown level places in those important top six level finishes, and it looks like he could be a showdown guy if this keeps up. He's doing a really, really good job. Absolutely. And the next round at Brands Hatch around the GP circuit is a circuit where the Kawasaki's are expected to go an awful lot better uh, than they yes. do at Snetterton. So keep an eye on them there. Um, and if Dixon's in the fight, then yeah, there's there are there are circuits still to come where Kawasaki riders can pick up big points, and Dixon will hope to be uh, among those. Uh, top five in the championship. I know the top six make it in, but we'll give you the top five for now because they look as if they've pulled away a bit. Um, Luke Mossy has 147 points from Shaky Burn on 140. Then comes Haslam on 132, Brooks on 118, and O'Halloran on 115. Those five have a bit of a gap now of 22 points from O'Halloran to Hickman in sixth. And this is where it gets interesting. Hickman's 6th on 93. Dixon is 7th on 89. Christian Iden, who hasn't been seen since his injury a couple of rounds ago, he's still on 86. So he's still within 7 points of the showdown spots. Um, Glenn Irwin, who's also missed last two rounds through injury, is on 63. Dan Linfoot on 60. And James Ellison, 11th on 51. Ellison, Drake, continues to be the great enigma of British superbikes. Clearly has the pace to win any given round, really, on pace. Just can't keep the thing on the road or keep the thing running for a race distance, can he? Not always through his own fault. The first race was a mechanical-induced retirement. The second was a rider-induced retirement when he crashed out of a podium spot. But these DNFs are building up now to the point where it's actually starting to put his participation in the showdown in some genuine jeopardy now. He's in trouble. He's in real trouble now at this point. And yeah, like, like it's not entirely James Edison's fault. I mean, this weekend kind of summed it up. Where race one, it was a technical problem on the McCams, Yamaha and McCams. Is, they, they've they've not been particularly helpful in this, and they've they've there's been a lot of unreliability regarding that. Malfunctioning ECU was deemed the problem for race one. Oof. Just stuff that you don't normally hear about in bike racing. A faulty ECU? I mean, come on. Um, it's, it's, it's disappointing because Ellison, we all know he's a fantastic rider and he's a top three or four guy on his day who can win any given race on paper. And he's got a bike that can challenge for race wins. We saw Brooks do it on the same bike in race two. But despite that, we're now in a situation where Ellison is probably going to have to get five or six podiums between now and the showdown to realistically have a chance. He's on 51 points right now. 
Um, Peter Hickman has the sixth showdown spot on 93. So for, he's 42 behind with nine races to go. He's probably going to need multiple podiums because Hickman has been one of the few consistent guys that has been in or around the top eight or nine pretty much every single race this season. He's finished every single race and he's only finished outside of the top 10 twice. So, and that's the sort of form that will get you into a showdown, even if you're not the most competitive guy in the world. Edison has got one, two, three, four, five, six DNFs this season. And the one podium finish at Knockhill in race two where he finished in second. That's not going to cut it for Edison. He needs more. He needs a lot more than that. It's not impossible for him to get in from here, but it's going to be a big, big ask. Not impossible. Well, we crunched the numbers before the show, looking at previous years, to try and get an idea of what the average score is needed to get into sixth um, by the time the showdown positions are cut off. And over the last three years, it's tended to be between 150 and 170 points that you need um, to get in, um, which means that to get to a showdown spot by the time the cutoff is, Ellison's going to need to get um, minimum 100 points from here, maximum possibly 120 points in nine races, which means he's going to have to average 10 to 13 points a race to get in, which is fourth. Um, yeah. And even in even on his best day, even with the pace he's got, with the standard of competition he's up against, that's no guarantee. Absolutely not a guarantee. He's got to get through. I mean, I think the one guy that could be the real problem in this is Jake Dixon, because Dixon's only going to score more points if he keeps this form going. He's been the real shot in the arm. And there's one other problem. Christian Eden's probably going to be coming back next round as well. Yeah. And Eden mm -hmm. has been, again, top five level speed. Irwin is back as well. So there's going to be a lot of... like Ellison's going to have to be flawless against a super good probably like six through nine to get to get into the showdown spots right now. And Ellison just hasn't got the reliability or the bottle by the looks of it right now to get back into the race because he's thrown away many a good position on his own as well as McCann's having mechanical problems. Mm, absolutely. And the, I guess the one hope, the one piece of hope he's got to take from it is that if he does make the showdown, he is going to have a ton of podium points um, to get there because that's what he's going to have to achieve. He's going to have to get podiums um, with some stark regularity to get in um, if, if Ellison's going to have a shot at the showdown later in the year. So um, that's really going to be the story um, as we follow through these next few rounds, Drake. It looks really like we're talking about, if we include Ellison, um, we're talking about six riders for one showdown spot, do we think? If we're gonna, do we think now that Mossy, Byrne, Haslam, Brooks, and O'Halloran, injury permitting, are probably going to get in? Um, we, then... we, 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 we crunched some numbers on this earlier. We reckon about 150 to 160 points should get you over the line here. So O'Halloran uh, fifth on 115. Even, like I say, injury permitting, those top five should get in. I um, reckon From so, when they're yes. at, which means that Hickman, 93, Dixon, 89... Eden 86, Irwin 63, Limfoot 60, and Ellison 51 are going for one spot now. Yeah, I, I reckon I reckon those two are I reckon those one, two, three, four, five, six dudes are fighting for one spot. And at the moment, where'd your vote go? I have to say at the moment the form man of those six has to be Dixon, surely. Dixon is the informed guy. If I had to guess, I think Christian Eden could come. If he comes back healthy, I think he 
because he's shown real like okay, I can win races level sort of speed from in this year um, on that BMW, which is a shock to me. Given that the BMW are really right up there this year, so if I had to, if I had to, if I had to, so only put a gun to my head right now. Dixon's a pretty safe bet if he can keep this form going, but I think Christian Inden is a, has got a real chance of coming back in and upsetting the Apple car because mm. I think I think Glenn Irwin's going to have to make up like thirty odd points to get in, and that could be a problem. Even mm. though he's again he's had great form at times this season it's on the Ducati. Yeah, it's on the Ducati as well. So yeah, who knows? Um, but I think the, the the combination of points and outright speed, I think Eden's got the best chance. I reckon. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to watch how how it unfolds. It is going to be uh, so so close. Hickman's interesting in that he's kind of been the invisible man, um, which is amazing for a guy who's way over six foot. Um, but he's he's kind of been the invisible man in that there always tends to be one guy, doesn't the Dre, every year in the showdown who just sneaks in on just pure consistency of getting points in every single race, um, gets in the showdown without a single podium. Hickman might well be that man this year. Um, if he can just keep chipping away at it, keep getting those sort of fifth, sixth, seventh place results um, with nine races to go, 93 points, he might well get to that magic 150, 160 mark um, on pure consistency alone. Um, so, yeah, there are many, many different ways to skin a cat. But, of course, um, you want to get to that showdown with an actual shot of winning it outright, which is where the podium points come in. And at the moment, if the championship was to start now with the showdown as it is now, Shaky Burn would be the championship leader, which is an amazing thing to say, given that he missed the first two races through injury and DNF'd the third race. He would have 20 podium points with Haslam on 19, Mossy on 17. Dixon, who's not in at the moment, has 10. Um, Brooks, who is in at the moment, has nine. Um, we have uh, Iden, who has five podium points, but as I say, he's not in either at the moment. Uh, Glenn Irwin, who's not in at the moment, has four. O'Halloran, who is, has three, as does Ellison. Um, but I guess what, what we can say from that, Dre, which is a positive... Now, there's plenty of time for this to change, it has to be said, but unlike many previous years in the showdown, where the showdown has got underway, but someone has had so many podium points that they've had a very, very strong lead to start the showdown anyway... At the moment, we have at least three guys that were may well head into the showdown pretty much level pegging. Not to mention Dixon looks very quietly. He's got 10 pony points for the double win he has now. So yeah, exactly. Dixon, Dixon could only be a handful of points off the top three as well of the way it's been playing this season. Brooks has nine podium credits as well now with those two second places. So it's close. It's definitely close. The showdown is definitely at best and definitely at its brightest the more competitive the field is. And right now, we have three guys that are a, a landslide better than the rest of the field right now, but the second tier is keeping up with them, with Dixon and Brooks, and I think Inn will come back strong if, he, if he's capable, uh, if he's healthy. I think he could be a guy to keep an eye on as well. So right now, it's, it's, it's working out beautifully. It is. It's nine races to go, as we say, to get those showdown spots figured out. That's four rounds. Um, of two races, three of them have two races, one of them is a triple header of course and that is the final round before the showdown positions are cut off.
Right, let's do the news um, and let's head back briefly to the Saxon ring last weekend and uh, a weekend of Turkish delight. Had to get that one in so you can all groan. Um, there's the two Turkish twins uh, from the Onsu family took a win apiece. Um, Dennis Onsu, um, the less heralded of the two, took his first win of the season in Rebel Rookies uh, in the pouring rain of Saturday afternoon at the Saxon ring. Um, it, the heavens opened again after Moto2 qualifying for those that weren't aware um, and it was absolutely sodden for the Red Bull Rookies race one. Uh, Denny Zonsu won it um, ahead of Kevin August, the young German rider taking a second place on home soil. And then Chan Onsu, the uh, Turkish rider that we've spoken most about in Rebel Rookies so far. Uh, he took third position um, for... Um, well, what is now the championship leader, ahead of the Spaniard Adrian Carrasco. Um, the man who headed in as championship leader, LH View, um, sunk um, without being too um, too disrespectful to a guy in wet conditions, but he only finished 15th. Um, so he lost his championship lead. Uh, in the drier conditions of race two on Sunday, Chan Onsu took that victory ahead of View, so the two championship contenders were right up the front. Uh, Kazuki Masaki, the Japanese in third, ahead of Omar Bonoli, the Italian. Um, with Ryusi Namanaka, the Japanese, in fifth. That's his third top six of the year. And Matthias Megale, uh, another German, in sixth. Rory Skinner, unfortunately, having a poor outing this time. Only scored one point from his two rides. He was only 17th in race one, 15th in race two. Um, and he has fallen to seventh in the championship as a result of that, which is a bit of a fall for the kid who won the opening race of the season at Hareth, the young Scott. Um, Onsu, that's Chan Onsu, leads the championship now by 14 points from view, with Masaki in third, um, 22 off the lead. Uh, Omar Bonoli is 57 off the lead in fourth, just ahead of Dennis Onsu in fifth, Megley in sixth, Skinner seventh, Yamanaka eighth, Kevin August, who, as I mentioned, got a podium in race one. He's ninth. And Stuart Garcia, who is a Colombian, took 10th position, um, or is 10th in the championship, having finished 9th in race 2 and 5th in race 1 in the wet at the Saxon Ring last weekend. Now, Moto2 news, and we've mentioned this a bit earlier on, but let's now give you um, some context behind this. Mattia Pasini um, has seen a second podium stripped from him in as many weekends, um, because, of course, he lost that third place um, as a result of a post-race penalty for cutting the final chicane uh, at Aston last weekend. He's now also lost his podium from Catalonia for... This is a bizarre story, Dre, which we're stunned by for using illegal engine oil, which takes some doing in a class that has control oil in it that Moto2 does. It's a standardized series. <laughs> How do you get this wrong? I, 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 it boggles my mind that in a series where pretty much 90% of the bikes are the same... How do you, how do you get to a point where you're using different oil? Uh, I, I it, it boggles my mind. I feel really bad for Pacini, and that was there's nothing he could have done about that one. That's just team incompetence yeah. on that one to, to get it to get it so badly wrong, and basically have cost Pacini 16 points and taking him even further out of the championship. Probably eliminated him from the championship. Yeah, yeah, in a second, yeah. He's, he's just that's 20 points. Um. Yeah, it's, it says it all, really. Um, yeah, the uh, the revised result, then, um, for those that are wondering, here's how the result changed from Catalonia. As Marquez was still the winner, obviously. Um, Tom Luti was promoted to second in that race, and Miguel Oliveira was promoted to third, um, which was why we've now said he's had three podiums this year rather than two in Moto2. Uh, Lorenzo Baldazzari was promoted to fourth. Morbidelli, who you remember was sixth that day, was up to fifth now, ahead of Navarro, Quartararo, Vieje, Siren, and Nakagami, tenth. Corsi, Vinales, Bagnaia and Locatelli then were up to 14th. And Yoni Hernandez promoted into the points uh, in 15th position. Um, but as I say, Mattia Pasini pulled right out of it for illegal engine oil. 
uh, in a class with control engine oil. Yeah, go figure. Um, right, to another uh, to another story which has us saying that exact same phrase and another story which boggles the mind. The continued saga of the circuit of goddamn whales. Oh, um, why right. won't this die? Yeah, well, <laughs> it, it might be about to, Dre, don't worry. Um, because um, this week saw the latest twist in this uh, never-ending story uh, where the uh, circuit has had another proposal for support withdrawn from the Welsh Government, um, a development that looks set to bring this plan um, to a conclusion. Um, this latest proposal was uh, for 50% of the £425 million cost of the project to be underwritten by the regional government, which essentially was to ensure the project that in case, basically to ensure in case it ran at a loss for the next 35 years. Um, now, unlike these previous two requests, according to MCN, the latest was examined by an independent company uh, and it was their report which prompted the government, the regional government, to make their decision um, to withdraw its support. Um, the, the the real stickler here, the real key to this, um, was that the report shed doubt on the claims that the circuit would generate 750,000 annual visitors and 6,000 jobs for the region. The auditors found the more realistic job figure, you'll believe this, you won't believe this, listeners, the more realistic job figure, as opposed to the 6,000 that they were promising, was nearer to one not thousand, one hundred jobs that they were actually oh. going to create. Um, now, this is a circuit, Dre, or this is a project which has either got its sums badly wrong or really never even had a leg to stand on from the beginning. And I'm starting to think it was the latter. I'm starting to think yes is the answer to that one. It could easily be on both counts. Like, how, like, how has this project been basically... Like, this, this whole saga was launched, this whole... Um, project was launched in 2011 we've been on right. the go now for six years and nothing has happened not one brick um they've basically got silverstone to host this their grand prix for them for the last couple of years and we're now looking as if this is the end of the matter after six years nothing six years and a lot like, of money spent what, what like I, I i heard many reports about like high-ranking executives in the project and not even seen the site they were planning to build the track on yet stories about how obviously you know the welsh government were going back and forth as whether they would actually fund half of this project or not the report that came out earlier this week that said that michael carrick the the, the main organizer of the project no relation to Manchester United footballer Michael Carrick, um, was promised £38 million for him and his wife if he was able to actually pull this off. Which probably, ex which probably explains a lot of how it even got to this point in the first place. Um, but it, it, the whole thing just screams cowboyish right now. Yeah. Um, that you know, that they basically came in with this ridiculously over-ambitious plan, were way in over their heads... I've only just now figured out, okay, the, the jig's pretty much up here, fellas. There's no way we're actually going to be able to pull this shit off. Especially now they're saying, I mean, the jobs was the big appeal. Like, see, oh, yeah, we could bring 6,000 jobs into the area. Great, that sounds awesome. Until you realize, well, what racing track is going to pay employees on a year-round basis? Like, it's like football stadiums. Like, you think... You're gonna you're gonna you're gonna bring a, a lot of business, but how? Like, like for example, in American football, there's always been talk about teams moving to new stadiums or threatening to move their team to another city. Like the big argument is it will bring in jobs, but like you get eight football games in a home stadium in the space of a 12 month period, you might get a couple of concerts. You're not gonna make money all round on a stadium like that, and you're not gonna be able to employ full time 
full-time staff on a yearly basis on that because there's nothing for them to do half the time. So, it, like, I always thought the 6,000 was stupidly ambitious. Um, I just didn't realise that it was basically foolhardy at that point that uh, they were out to the tune of 5,900 on that one. So uh, the whole thing just screams cowboy to me. Um, I, I hope this is the end. Yeah, like, I, I, hope, I hope Dorna just ripped this contract up. I mean, I mean, what more what more reason or what more convincing do they need to give to to just rip this up because right. this this circuit let's see let's even say that somehow some miracle money tree uh to uh quote theresa may um appears um and uh rather than giving it to the dup they give it to the cow um and let them let them build this circuit it, 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 it's not gonna happen for what let's say it starts now it's not gonna happen for two years you'd say no. two years is a sort of cautious sort of estimate for a circuit to get built which means that this circuit, and it was one of the first topics we ever discussed on Bike Live when this show started on Downforce three years ago. Very um, good I think point. it was our, our second ever show, I think we discussed it. Um, the yeah. circuit was, that was when they got the contract for the, for the British Grand Prix, a 10-year contract. Uh, a five-year option with an option, well, five-year contract with an option of five more years. Um, and let's say they build this in two years. That means we're going to have a circuit of Wales hosting a race in, what, 2019, perhaps. Right. Um, which means that that's the fourth year of five, um, and that that that's being optimistic for them. Like surely Dorna have now just got to rip this up and just basically go to Silverstone and say, you know, just just let's get this sorted. Let's basically return, let's restore some normality and some sensible some sensible thinking here because this is not going to happen. Um, this circuit of Wales, and um, let's just let's just cut our well cut our substantial losses if you're the welsh regional government and um, be done with it because already yeah. nine million pounds in public money has been invested in this um Absolutely. and and they they bought ftr and lost 413 grand um these figures at mcn this week it's just it's just not gonna work it hasn't worked it's it's just uh it's a complete mess of a story unfortunately and um i was almost just not going to mention this and not give any more airtime to it because it's just such a joke but um, but we need to we need to get these facts out there and just explain what's going on with this circuit and um, the Grand Prix this year, which is being run by the Circuit of Wales still, um, is going to take place at Silverstone this year for the British Grand Prix. And I think it's about time that Dawn will just draw up a new contract for this British Grand Prix, um, even if it's a sort of swap deal, even if it's the old sort of German Grand Prix in Formula One where they swap from one circuit to another and have it Donington Silverstone, Donington Silverstone. <laughs> Um, just some sort of deal where the circuit of Wales is just pushed into the annals of history and pretend this damn thing never happened. Um, Good because, because it's an absolute mess. Back to MotoGP news that um, we can actually make some sense of, and that's uh, the news that Daniel Petrucci is staying at Pramac for next season. Um, news that came a little bit of a surprise to Petrucci himself when he was interviewed about it in part by May after qualifying second on Saturday. Um, but Petrucci is staying put with the team for next year. I think a move that suits all parties, I think it has to be said. We yeah. don't quite know yet the arrangement in terms of what bike he'll have. You've got to think, given his performances this season, that Ducati will continue to supply a up, an up-to-date bike for him, i.e. a 2018 spec Ducati for him next year. Um, but we shall see. Um, and it looks at the moment, Dre, as if his teammate will not be Scott Redding, but Jack Miller uh, who after three years at Mark VDS on Honda HRC money is now going to earn some Ducati money. Yeah, it's like, thanks for all the faith you put me on the bye. Um, yeah, it's a very interesting move there. I mean, my big fear about him going to Mark VDS was always going to be how 
like how is he going to get over a Honda that doesn't seem to be want to be ridden properly? And it looks like he's going to get out of that and maybe join Ducati and maybe get a GP17 next year by the going by the common sense logic of how of how Ducati do business. And it's so, interesting because I've had a lot of people speak on air in um, on BT Sport and in on the World Feed saying that they really think a Ducati would suit Jack Miller. It's interesting. I I, I, I looked forward to seeing how aggressive because if he's, if he's done all of this, including a, a Grand Prix win on a on a Honda. I'd like to see how he gets along in a Ducati, a, a bit more of a proper established bike in the field. He'll probably be a GP17, which is a very strong bike, at least um, the way the way Pramac's been the, so far this season. So I'd like to see how it, how it turns out. It's looking good. Mm, it is looking good. Now, um, to a race that we all enjoy every year, we, we don't often cover endurance motorcycle racing, but one race is where we make a big exception, and that is the Suzuka 8-Hour, um, which is within a few weeks from happening it takes place at the end of july um and just this week um they have announced the entry list um for the 40th coca-cola suzuka eight hours endurance race at suzuka um later this year the final round of the 2016-17 uh fim endurance world championship so the championships will be decided there uh, now the suzuki uh world endurance team that of course are reigning champions uh, will be in action with Vincent Philippe, Etienne Masson, and a rider to be confirmed. Um, you have to wonder whether they're going to try and find someone Japanese for that third seat, um, but we shall see. Um, don't expect them to really compete at the front. This is always a race where the Japanese factories throw the kitchen sink at it um, to try and take victory. Um, something that has been uh, successful for Yamaha in the last two years. Um, now, the Yamaha are returning with that number 21 factory Yamaha R1. Um, and there is a slight, slight tweak to their team for this year because Paul Spargo is no longer a Yamaha rider. Uh, he's now a KTM rider. Um, so their team for this year, uh, it's still a pretty star-studded team, mind you, on the number 21. Katsuki Nakasuga remains on board, um, the yeah. trusted Yamaha test rider. Um, he will be joined by Alex Lowe's, who, of course, rode for them last year for the yeah. team. Um, and I guess you could probably guess his teammate. It's his teammate in World Supers, Michael van der Mark. Um, we'll hey. compete that three-man Honda uh, Yamaha lineup. Because Van der Mark has been uh, uh, a rider that has been flying the flag for Honda in recent years. Because he was teammate to Casey Stoner the year that he had that mother of all pileups at the eight hour, uh, very early in the race. Um, Van der Mark, of course, had been a Honda World Superbike rider at that time. He's not anymore. As a result, he has moved to Yamaha and will front the Yamaha number twenty-one factory team. Honda's factory team, um, which uh, goes under the guise of the six-three-four Musashi Hark Pro squad. Um, they will be also running a very interesting team. Takumi Takahashi, who is one of their trusted test riders, he will be partnered by Takaki Nakagami, um, who is likely to be riding a Honda in MotoGP next season. Of course, rides for Honda Team Major in Moto2. And, which this is fascinating, we've just mentioned him, he's leaving Honda, Jack Miller uh, will be the uh -huh. third rider for that team. Jack Miller, Takaki Nakagami, and Takumi what? Takahashi um, for Mushashi Heart Pro Honda. That is essentially, in um, even though it's the 634 and it doesn't essentially have a factory title, that is, to all intents and purposes, the factory Honda effort. Uh, this is a great hour from Honda, ah. ja from Honda Japan. Um, so they've got Takahashi, Nakagami, and Miller as their three riders. What a lineup uh, that is um, for that team. Um, the SCC TSR Honda is another team worth watching because they're another team that will be suffering, or not suffering, but uh, benefiting from a lot of Honda backing. Um, and they have an interesting team. Stefan Bradle, uh, Dominique Egata, and Randy Deponier. <laughs> Uh, are their three riders. Three riders with Grand Prix experience, a former Moto2 champion in Bradle, and of course, the current Honda World Superbike rider. Egerton, who's won Grand Prix in Moto2, 
um, and yeah. Dupunier, who is um, having given up on MotoGP. Yeah, he's Dupunier. And he's given up on MotoGP and World Superbikes recently, and he's actually making a pretty good career for himself now uh, in the Endurance yeah. World Championship. So that is a strong team to keep an eye on as well. This is a team that uh, Bike Live, I think, will be very keen on because there are two riders that uh, Dre and Bex, respectively, are very keen on. And Takuya Suda is one of them. It's the Yoshimura team, the Yoshimura Suzuki team, a team that Alex Lowe has ridden for in the past. Takuya Suda, who is their MotoGP test rider. Sylvain Gintoli, um, who, of course, rides for the Suzuki team in BSB. And Josh Brooks, um, who, of course, currently oh. rides a Yamaha uh, in BSB. Uh, Brooks, Gintoli, and Suda um, for what is essentially the leading Suzuki team um, in, the, uh, in the Suzuki race hour. And the lead Kawasaki team, Kawasaki Team Green. Um, my hope was that they were going to just throw Ray and Sykes in, but understandably, they probably said no to this. Um, Kawasaki Team Green. Kazuma Watanabe, another Japanese test rider. Um, Aslan Shah, once of Moto2. And Leon Haslam. Um, ah, who, of course, Haslam. is a factory BSB rider for Kawasaki and has uh, links to Team Green. He's likely to be back in there with them next year. Haslam is in for the eight-hour as well. Uh, we also have the Moroaki Motul team, um, which will be riding on a Honda for this year's eight-hour. Yuki Takahashi, former Moto2 race winner. Yuichi Kianari and Dan Limfoot, um, which again is a brilliant team. Um, Honda Team Asia are running an all-Asian team, understandably. Dimaseki Pratama of Indonesia, Ratapong Willarot, brother of Ratapak Willarot, and Zakon Zaidi, who is a former Moto2 rider as well. So many strong riders. We have Josh Waters, who's going to be involved with the Motormap Supply Future Access team. Josh Waters, another staple, um, once of BSB, but also a staple of endurance racing as well. Sheridan Marias, um, front-running World oh, Sport. Yes. He's in action for the number 32 Team RABD Transit Squad, uh, alongside Bjorn Esmond and Brandon Cretu, the, the American there, on board a Yamaha. Christian Iden is at the 8th hour this season alongside Raffaele De Rosa what? and Dasuki Sakai. They're on BMWs for the BMW Motorrad 39 team. Um, we also have... Uh, there's another rider from Moto2 who I've missed as well who's in action this year. Hafiz Sirin, that's the one. He's in the 8th hour as well. Um, so keep an eye on him. Uh, Marcel Schrotter is racing in the 8th hour. He's riding for the S-Pulse Dream Racing Team. Uh, they are riding Suzuki's this year. Uh, Louis Rossi, former um, Moto3 race winner. He's at the 8th hour this season. Um, the Honda Endurance Racing Factory team of Julien de Costa, Sebastian Gimbert, and Freddy Foray are in action too. Uh, but as I say, the key factory teams to keep an eye on from Factory Yamaha, Lowe's van der Mark, and Nakasuga. The Factory Honda team um, of uh, Takumi Takahashi, Takaki Nakagami, and Jack Miller. Uh, we have the factory Suzuki team, which will be running Gintoli and Brooks uh, in their lineup. And, of course, Haslam for the factory Kawasaki team. It is such a star-studded lineup for this year's Suzuka 8-hour, um, which takes place at the end of this month. It is a race well, well um, worth watching. As I say, the factories, particularly the Japanese factories, throw the kitchen sink at it. Uh, and you can really get that from their team lineups. Um, before that, uh, Superbikes will be racing stateside because this weekend sees the final round before the summer break, the United States round of the World Superbike Championship at Laguna Seca uh, in Monterey. Now, of course, it's going to be around tinged with emotion and sadness, given that Nicky Hayden will not be there. Um, now, he will be replaced for the first time this weekend um, by the American Jake Gagne, who um, has ridden for many years in 
American uh, Moto America, the Superbike Championship, and of course we'll have a lot of experience of Laguna Seca. Um, but I have to say, Dre, I don't know if it's just me, I think you're probably the same here, that's not a ride I would have wanted to take, if that was me. No, I... Oof, oh, God. Um, okay, like, and this is an extreme case of really betting against yourself. I mean, uh, the, the, the team is bound by the regulations. They have to put a replacement rider in. Um, yeah. But it's, it's a thankless task. It's a thankless, loveless task, and you're going to basically fill in on Nicky Hayden's home round on his bike, and you're probably not going to perform all that well because of how stacked World Superbikes is at the highest level, um, and you're you're basically a novice, so to speak, on that on that one. It's oh man, I I, I, I don't envy him on this one. This is not the sort of job that I would want. It's it's there's a lot of emotional and physical burden on that one and i'm not sure I, i'd want any sort of that um involved but a blessing for trying but uh i think i think oof. all we i think all we can say to him is good luck and, and we're yeah. not but we're not being facetious we're not we're not taking the piss no, we're that seriously Jake. Jake, good luck um because i think we'd we'd all given the circumstances given that it's american on what is essentially nikki hayden's bike i think we would all absolutely adore it if he got a result on that bike it absolutely. would be such a great story um, so, so good luck, Jake, this weekend. Uh, as teammates of Stefan Bradle at Red Bull Honda, um, we're not expecting them to be up the front. The story at the front this weekend is likely to be red versus green. Um, now, I guess the first question is from the red corner, is Chas Davies fit? Because we haven't seen him race um, since, well, he got run over. Basically, a Kawasaki ran over the back of him um, on the last lap of race one in Mizano. Now, um, the betting bug is spreading within the Harrison household, and there is one member of that household who is praying beyond, he's hoping beyond hope that Chance Davis is fully fit, Dre. Yeah, it's not me, it's my brother. No. <laughs> uh, uh, surprise. Uh, but, uh, yeah, my, my brother put like 70 quid on Chaz Davis, like 60 or 68 on Chaz Davis to win at 5 to 2, and we're not even sure how fit he is going into this one. To which my, my literal response when he showed me his phone was like, are you insane? Um, <laughs> basically, um, this was my literal response to that, word for word. Um, and yeah, I oof. I wouldn't touch this race of a barge pole. Is my honest as my honest assessment of this one because Jonathan raised the favourite at thirteen to eight. Tom Sykes is seven to four. It's the sort of race where Sykes. I think the top three could very easily all win this one. I don't think any of them is at an appealing enough price to really play it, to be honest with you. But, oh, God, I would not be putting money on Chaz Davis given his current state. Um, that's that's going to be a big, big um, comeback ride because you, we all know Chaz is capable of winning round here. He had, he had a double two years ago. He, we all know he's excellent around Laguna Seca, but we have no idea the state of his neck going into this one. And that could be all sorts of dodgy. And, again, Kawasaki has been a much better all-round bar like this year compared to last year so i have no idea where this is going to go um so yeah you're a better man than me if, you, if you're putting money on Chaz davis so uh, ryan good luck with that one mate just, yeah, just yeah. throwing that out there. yeah drinks are on him if that comes in on saturday oh, night yeah. in race one um but uh as far as the championship's concerned given Chaz davis is basically blank that he drew uh, at mizano he didn't score in either round because he missed race two after his injury in race one it is now an all Kawasaki two-horse race. And Julian Ryder mentioned this a lot last weekend. He talks about going happy to the holidays. Um, and that's essentially right. what World Superbikes are doing now because they have essentially six weeks off 
Um, I think it's in Monat before Portum, before the German round, actually, at the end of August. Um, and it's a 50-point lead at the moment for Jonathan Ray. Um, Tom Sykes needs to in- eat into that, doesn't he? Now, he did go into the holidays very happy last year because he won um, that race where the two Ducatis kept trying to trip each other up and Sykes ended up being let off the leash to win the race, where right. Ray had his mechanical. Um, and Sykes... It's probably one of the few circuits, Donington apart, where Sykes has tended to have the better just about of Ray as teammates. He yes. Needs, he needs that to continue, doesn't he? He needs both, really, if you ask me. Um, 50 points is still a long way away for Tom Sykes. If he can even if he can get at least one of the wins over the two on Jonathan Ray and at least break even going into the summer break, then that wouldn't be a bad... It wouldn't be a terrible place to be for Tom Sykes at all, but he needs to start doing some damage and to raise Jonathan, Jonathan Ray's championship lead otherwise. Well, it's going to be a very boring summer break and, and return because we, we all, it's just going to have this air of the inevitable about it, really. But, um, yes, this is one of the few places Sykes tends to go really well around. He'll probably put it on pole because he's Tom Sykes. But Laguna Sega is a genuinely very difficult track to pass around, and that yeah. could be... Sykes' blessing, especially at least in race one. Yeah, especially <laughs> if he puts it on the pole. Tell you what, though, it's a good point you make, though, on that, and it's not being overtaken, because this might well be the acid test of the race two reverse grid rules, mightn't it? Yeah, it, it very well could be. You know, this is a track where... This doesn't seem hard... like the kind of track where you're going to go from ninth to first in a lap. No, it shouldn't be, because it's Should hard to been. pass around here. It's like, it's like, I say this, but Jonathan Ray has yeah. proven this wrong on every <laughs> yeah. single Grand Prix this season. Um, but yeah, like on paper, this is a very hard place to pass. It's, 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 Luna Seca is very stop-starty. It's very bumpy, a lot of undulation. Not very many places where, where you're on hard breaking after a lengthy straight. So it's hard to to make to, to really make a real difference in terms of how to overtake somebody around here. So on theory it should be hard to pass around here i'm saying in theory to protect myself in case jonathan ray embarrasses me on next week's show yeah. just point that out in advance yeah <laughs> which he's he's got a very very good chance of doing yeah. um, whatever happens we'll be back next week to review the united states round of the world superbike championship around that takes us into the summer break what will happen Will Chaz Davies make uh, the other half of the Harrison brothers sincerely rich? Um, yeah. Or will uh, will Tom Sykes make one very auction? We're very happy. Uh, who will still knows? Or will Jonathan Ray just basically uh, urinate on both bonfires? Uh, we will see. Join us next week for episode 21 of Bike Live. As I say, we'll review the United States round of the World Superbike Championship. Before that, episode 94 um, of the Monosport 101 podcast, we are clicking our way through the 90s not in quite such as inexorable fashion as joe root did earlier today um but even <laughs> so um we are cruising through the 90s episode 94 um this time you won't quite struggle quite so much Dre, for topics uh, austrian grand prix and um i believe we have do we have formula e back as well or is formula, formula e still away I think Formula E still away, but still we do away. have IndyCar. IndyCar. We do have the IndyCar Iowa Corn 300 as well. So, short oval. I mean, I hope it's a bit better than last year where Joseph Newgarden led for 282 out of the 300 laps. Um, that was rather ridiculous to watch in, in real time last year. But, of course, we'll also have Formula 1's Grand Prix of Austria. Um, it's a it's a traditional track where Mercs tend to go very well around. Um, Best behaviour, um, yeah, it, that's if they behave themselves because yeah. who knows what, what's going to happen when the visor goes down. I guess that's the, the that's probably the most appealing part of the weekend is Hamilton and Vettel going to erupt again, maybe. But we'll have to wait and see. 
Um, I don't really like this track. I think it's I think it's bad for current F1, but it's had a knack of throwing up a bit of drama the last couple of the years. So, hey, maybe that'll maybe that'll that trend will continue. So hopefully that um, IndyCar's Iowa Corn 300 and maybe even some more stuff in there as well. So keep that keep an eye peeled on that for Motorsport 101 episode 94 next week. Yeah, <laughs> keep an eye out on that. Uh, if you want all the information on each of our episodes uh, on Twitter, we're at Motorsport underscore 101 on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Motorsport 101. Um, our website is motorsport101.net. Our YouTube, it's .com forward slash Motorsport 101. Um, and as I say, if you want to back us financially and we thank each and every one of you that have um, and you want to earn yourself early access to this show and to Motorsport 101, it's patreon.com forward slash Motorsport 101. Uh, that brings us to the end of this week's episode, episode 20. Huge thank you to Andre Harrison for joining me for this bumper edition as we look back on the German Grand Prix and Snetterton BSB around uh, on a weekend that belonged to one man. And that man in this occasion is Hervé Poncheral, the Ponch, as we've called him on this <laughs> week's show. We look forward to your company next week here on Bike Live from the two of us. For now, it's bye-bye.